The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. There are only a handful of American writers that have gone on to become true household names around the world. Stephen King is one. Daniel Steele is another. James Patterson, Dan Brown, Nora Roberts. But there's only one comic book writer with international name recognition, arguably more name recognition than all those authors I just mentioned, with the lone possible exception of Stephen King, and that's Stan Lee. Stan motherfucking Lee. Gosh dang. Zap, boom, bam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The man co-created some of the most popular cultural icons of the last hundred years. Hell, of ever. Characters that have gone on to become some of the most popular fictional characters in the history of the world. I would guess most kids today around the world are way more familiar with Stan Lee characters like Spider-Man, the Hulk, Thor, the X-Men, the powerful uh, box office franchise, the Avengers, than they are with Shakespeare's characters of Romeo and Juliet, Hamlet, and King Lear. Stan Lee left behind an enormous creative legacy helping create characters beloved by millions, known by billions, characters who undoubtedly will live on in the zeitgeist for centuries. Stan's gift was to evolve comic book characters from the wood and black and white, all good or all bad, caricatures initially marketed at young children and turned them into much more flawed and nuanced human characters that young adults and full-grown meat sacks have come to enjoy immensely. Lee was also one of the most successful promoters of comic books in history, Although he never owned Marvel Comics, he became the face and some might argue the heart of the comic book publishing giant. Lee's creations have dominated Hollywood in recent years. A-list Hollywood actors fall all over themselves to be cast in one of Lee's or as one of Lee's heroes. The Avengers alone not only smashed recent box office records, they also attracted superstars like Robert Downey Jr., Scarlett Johansson, Chris Evans, Chris Hemsworth, Gwyneth Paltrow, Samuel L. Jackson, Josh Brolin, just to name a few. Stanley has, as you would expect, a lot of fans who think he is pretty much one of the coolest, most talented dudes to ever walk the earth. An immensely talented world builder. He also has a lot of people who think he was a fraud and an unscrupulous asshole who casually and commonly took credit for the work of others. We will address that criticism of Lee today as well. And we'll look into the history of the art form that Lee was so influential in bringing from a little niche industry into a very mainstream and incredibly profitable, massive fictional genre. We'll trace the history of Lee and some of his fellow artists as they reshape the entertainment landscape for America and the rest of the world in today's Pow Wham Gazooks Zoink Hulk Smash comic book edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. 
Happy Monday, meat sacks. Work, work can wait. They can wait. It's time for time suck. Get on in here, fellow knowledge seeker. The cult and curious welcomes you. Uh, grab a seat. Don't forget to throw a hail to Nimrod. Toss a toss a little hail or maybe a begone to Lucifina if you're scared. Be sure to praise our one-eyed, three-legged pit bull, good boy, demigod, mascot, Bojangles, and put some money in the tip jar for our bard, Triple M. Uh, almost done touring for the year. Thanks to everyone who's come out to a show in 2019. Had a great time in Tacoma this past week, and Saturday especially was pretty magical. So many military suckers there. Got a lot of challenge coins. Met a lot of awesome vets, active duty. Thank you all for your service. Only a couple shows left this year, and they're all uh, about 30 minutes from the Suck Dungeon. Spokane, Washington, Four shows right after Christmas, December 26th through the 28th, Thursday, Friday, one show each of those nights, and then two shows on Saturday, and that's it for 2019. And then I will announce a whole bunch of 2020 dates soon. We got them all figured out. Just got to do the announcement for the ticket sales. Uh, they will be at uh, dancummins.tv. Uh, thanks again to you Patreon space lizards for allowing us to make a Christmas super special for a few cult of the curious families in need. I'll release any details I can about that later. Hope we can make this an annual December tradition for many years to come. Uh, again, like I said last week, we'll be giving $3,600 uh, at least that much to some, uh, you know, families in need for the holidays to make it special for, for the kids and whatnot. Uh, back to a traditional charity next month. If you want a traditional charity like this month, uh, you know, this isn't one that we're donating to right now, but I'm sure we will at some point in the future. Uh, look no further than the Tilva Halla Project. Top shelf meat sack Adam Moore, owner and craftsman of Wooden Stars and Bars, wrote me an amazing letter. Gave me a 22-a-day Till Valhalla bracelet. If you're watching YouTube, it's this bracelet uh, right here. And uh, 22 was at one point how many veterans were estimated to kill themselves each day. That number seems to still be very high, around 20 now, according to uh, some sources. The wonderful Till Valhalla Project organization was founded by a veteran, employs veterans, builds beautiful memorial plaques to give to the families of fallen soldiers, and raises awareness about veteran suicide in order to reduce veteran suicide. They donate to Mission 22, an organization dedicated to healing America's veterans. They offer treatment for post-traumatic stress, traumatic brain injury, substance abuse, and all of the other issues facing veterans today. So for more info, go to tillvalhallaproject.com, link in the episode description. Thank you, Adam Moore, for your service, for your letter, for raising awareness. Also, just in time to decorate your Christmas trees, we now have some time suck ornaments. The words time suck or oh my heck, what this big deal? Stephen Colt, bro, all printed on little round Christmas tree balls, all made out of 500% uh, giant stone balls. Little space lizard joke there. I tried to keep those two shows separate, but I can't stop thinking about the way the conspiracy theorist David Hatcher Childress says giant stone balls. Ah, makes me happy. Uh, also, uh, back by popular demand, restock of the champion Time Suck University hoodies. Those are back in the store. And uh, finally, a Hail Nimrod long sleeve tee. Simple, sleek, black or white. Only the words Hail Nimrod for something a little more subtle. Nimrod very pleased with his classic design. And uh, going back to an old fabric choice with this one, making those shirts out of uh, 101% imported chinchilla labia for maximum comfort and luxury. And that's it for announcements. That's not too bad. I really do try and keep them brief. Uh, got some great Time Sucker updates this week if you want to stick around for the end of the episode. And I uh, got a great tale to dig into right now. So let's let's suck a comic legend. Let's see how much Stan Lee uh, we can swallow today. Uh, before we dig in to Stan's life and the impact it made in the comic book industry, 
let's first check out a few aspects of the comic book industry in general, like where it all began, the battle between DC and Marvel Comics, the overall impact of superheroes in general. Let's start with a little comic book history lesson. Uh, The precursor to comic books, printed cartoons have been popular in England and America since the early 1800s, originating as satirical and political cartoons printed in newspapers and periodicals. Uh, of course, I guess in some way, comics have uh, been with us a whole hell of a long longer than just, you know, a few hundred years. I mean, really, they've been with us longer than, you know, the written language. Old petroglyphs, hieroglyphs, or hieroglyphics, I guess, going back thousands of years. You know, they were uh, kind of sort of comics, you know, pictures drawn to help tell a story. But as far as the dictionary definition of a comic book goes, a magazine that presents a serialized story in the form of a comic strip, typically featuring the adventures of a superhero— The 19th century is the best place to start. The most important cartoonist of the 19th century, uh, that period of printed cartoons, certainly in America, was a German-born American named Thomas Nast. The dude was nicknamed the father of the American cartoon. Thomas's critical cartoons played a major role in bringing down a guy known as Boss Tweed and his corrupt political machine in 1870s New York City. Boss Tweed sounds like a comic book villain. Some Gotham City dude, but he he was a real guy. Uh, Nast also visually created the modern version of Santa Claus that exists worldwide today. He created the political symbol of the elephant for the Republican Party. His works were mostly printed in the magazine Harper's Weekly. Just one panel, mainly political cartoons. Uh, Nast's satirical political illustrations, mainly published in Harper's, actually played a very important role in the election of Abraham Lincoln for president in 1864 and Ulysses S. Grant in 1868 and 1872. Already back then, cartoons very important. Over the following decades, cartoons evolved from a primarily device to lampoon politicians and other public figures and public issues into serialized fictional stories, printed not just as one-panel additions to magazines and newspapers, but in actual comic books. Uh, The books were initially just compilations of magazine and newspaper cartoon reprints, then as books with original cartoon artwork. And then the actual superhero was born in 1938 with the advent of Superman. However, hold those eye rolls, comic book nerds. I am aware that many will argue that the first superhero actually debuted in 1936 with The Phantom. The Phantom appeared in newspapers and the man behind the mask was Kit Walker. Actually, the 21st Phantom, since the costume would get handed down from one generation to the next. That's the origin story. From father to son, one time to a daughter. Keep bad guys scared, right? Have them think the Phantom was immortal. And he was the first fictional character to wear that skin-tight, sweet costume. You know, eyes, and you know, just weren't that visible, just so you could see the pupils. That whole look that's become the basic trademark of superheroes all started with the Phantom. Uh, but he initially, he didn't really have any superpowers. So maybe not like a superhero, just a mysterious, cool dude who likes wearing some tight shit. You know, he's got a sweet costume. He's good with his hands, good with a gun. He could fight pretty well. Writer and illustrator named Lee Fox from St. Louis, Missouri, created the Phantom. Uh, who would go on to appear in multi-panel comic strips and uh, newspapers around the country, hitting an eventual audience in that format of over 100 million people. Uh, a little funny note about Lee Falk, his, uh, his original uh, official biography claimed that he was an experienced world traveler who had studied with Eastern mystics, uh, which was not true. He wrote that because he thought people would be more interested in the Phantom and another character I'll mention here in a sec if their creator had an interesting and worldly backstory. Uh, In reality, he was just a dude from St. Louis who, when he traveled to New York City to pitch the Phantom concept to a publisher, that was the farthest he'd ever traveled from home. He'd never left the country. Uh, And the same Lee Falk also created the uh, Mandrake the Magician character in 1934. And uh, Mandrake also uh, nationally syndicated 
In newspaper comic strips nationwide, Mandrake was a magician, Avi, uh, who could hypnotize people super fast. Just a gesture. He could make his uh, subjects basically instantaneously see illusions. So that's kind of a superpower. As the comic went on, he also demonstrated the ability to become invisible, shape shift, levitate, teleport. So he definitely came to possess some superhero powers. So the first, I don't know, traditional superhero comic, Superman, 1938, the first masked man, 1936, first illustrated dude who could do some things that a regular dude couldn't do, 1934. Uh, now let's talk about the six ages of comic books. There are, there are these uh, six ages that most fans seem to agree on. this platinum, golden, silver, bronze, dark, and juniper berry. Uh, I mean, modern. Uh, I wish it was juniper berry. How, uh, how funny would that be? This is the, yeah, it's the, it's the juniper berry, uh, you know, era of comics. Uh, published in 1897. Let's talk about the Platinum Age, uh, 1897 to 1938. Uh, published in 1897, The Yellow Kid in McFadden's Flats. Considered by many comic book historians to be the first comic book in so much as it bore the phrase comic book on its back cover. And his publication kicked off what is now considered to be, again, this Platinum Age of comics. Uh, the Yellow Kid wasn't the graphically stunning comic book we're used to seeing today. You know, feature black and white reprints of popular newspaper comic strips. The character of the Yellow Kid, who popped up in one-panel socio-political cartoons from 1895 to 1898 in Joseph Pulitzer's New York World, is actually connected to the term yellow journalism, something I studied quite a bit when I put together a TEDx talk earlier this year. You can Google that if you want to check it out on YouTube. Uh, yellow journalism is the American term for journalism in associated newspapers that present little or no legitimate, well-researched news. Instead, just relying on eye-catching headlines and basic sensationalism for increased sales. And anyway, while some of this uh, uh, book of compiled comics, or while some think this book, excuse me, of compiled newspaper comics is the first comic book, there is debate about this as well. Of course, there's, there's debate with all this stuff because people are super passionate about it. Um, the real first comic book, some people think, is The Adventures of Mr. Obadiah Oldbuck, published in Geneva, Switzerland in 1837. How did I just say that? 1837. Uh, then in the UK in 1841. And then in New York City as a newspaper supplement in 1842. And as a standalone book in 1849. And, and yeah, a lot of people think this is both the first comic book printed in the US and also America's first newspaper comic. There were no word balloons in this comic, but it did feature sequential illustrations accompanied by captions written and illustrated by Swiss caricaturist Rudolf uh, Toffer. The story was never intended for publication. It was something that Rodolf uh, did for fun, uh, for some friends. Then the story got published, became widely popular, and I love that. You know, the world's first comic was just a story and drawings done for some fun. The story was a tale about the adventures and misadventures of a guy named Mr. Boy, as he attempted to uh, court a young woman. And he goes through all kinds of bullshit and then eventually ends up marrying the girls chasing and they live happily ever after. And he doesn't have any magical superpowers and he's bad with a sword. So... I can't recommend reading it. Uh, the first monthly comic book was creatively titled Comics Monthly, and it was published in 1922. Still wasn't a comic book like we think of today, though. It was uh, just some compiled reprints of daily newspaper comic strips. In 1933, Funnies on Parade became the first color comic book printed in the now standard comic book size of six and five-eighths by ten and a quarter inches. Again, uh, it was just more reprints. Let's talk about the first real comic book in the sense of what we think of a comic book as today. In February 1935, DC Comics precursor National Allied Publications published New Fun Number 1. Really the first ever comic book because it consisted of completely original material. It wasn't newspaper Sunday funnies compilations being reprinted. 
It was uh, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, the duo who would become known and later worshipped by nerds worldwide for creating Superman. They began working on New Fun in October of 1935. And in March of 1937, in an edition of Detective Comics Number 1, Siegel and Schuster introduced their character Slam Bradley, hard-drinking chain-smoking private eye, originally operating out of Cleveland, who worked with a sidekick, Shorty Morgan. And Slam would later appear in stories with like Superman, Batman, other DC creations. Now it's getting going. Jerry and Joe also created Dr. Occult, who first appeared in 1935. And Dr. Occult, random nerd trivia, earliest character created by DC Comics still currently used in the DC universe. Like Mandrake the Magician, Dr. Occult can hypnotize and create illusions. He can astral project. He wields a, a powerful talisman, a sphere or disc with a black and white pattern called the mystic symbol of the seven. It grants him the powers of clairvoyance, the power to cast out demons, to deflection, force field projection, which I had one, must be nice. A talisman probably got its power from some kind of, uh, you know, uh, space giant stone balls out there somewhere. Uh, Dr. Occult, private investigator, user of magic who specializes in cases involving the supernatural. Uh, these early artists love magicians and detectives, apparently reflecting the cultural interests of the day. Dr. Occult originally had a sidekick, Rose Psychic. Now Rose is more of an alter ego. At, la at least one storyline written by Neil Gaiman. Something to keep in mind with these characters, by the way, if you're a, if you're a big comic book nerd, is uh, I'm describing one version of them. As the years have gone on, virtually all, if, if not literally all, of the major comic characters have seen their abilities and backstories and personalities and uh, oftentimes even races and genders morph and change and evolve as numerous artists and authors continually reimagine and reinterpret them and put them into different story worlds and narratives, which I love because it infuriates certain diehard fans uh, who get really anal, in my opinion, take some of this shit uh, a little too seriously. And uh, arguments, you know, go around uh, who these superheroes are supposed to be and it turns into these epic and entertaining kind of nerd keyboard battles online. Now let's talk about the golden age of comics. Golden age of comics began in June 1938 with the debut of motherfucking Superman. Action Comics number one would last until 1956, this era. Uh, on August 24th, 2014, a near mint copy of this early comic book was sold on eBay for $3,207,852 uh, US. The only comic to have sold for more than $3 million for a single original copy. Superman obviously went on to become a huge hit for DC. Other characters introduced in Action Comics number one, like Sticky Mitt Stimson, uh, did not go on to become widely popular. <laughs> Who would have guessed that Superman would go on to become a bigger, more popular character than Sticky Mitt Stimson? Everyone guessed that. I'm guessing literally everyone guessed that. Uh, in his comic debut, Sticky Mitt swipes some apples and is pursued by the police, and then he gets a lucky break. And he escapes and he hides in a trash can. And then he quickly fades into comic book obscurity. Poor, du poor dude didn't have any superpowers. He was just a guy with a shitty nickname who was hungry for some fucking tasty apples that he couldn't afford to buy. Uh, Sticky Mitt would have reappeared. Uh, Sticky Mitt would reappear only once in the comic book world in a November 1939 uh, issue of Pootie and Juju, America's most popular early 20th century monthly comic. In the first few years after Superman's release, uh, Pootie and Juju actually outsold the Man of Steel. Uh, Pootie and Juju had nine out of the ten of the best-selling issues or comic issues of the 1930s, uh, with titles like Pine Tar Pootie and Juju Stole Third, uh, Hobo Pootie Rides the Rails to Juju Town, and Who the Gosh Dang Heck is Shirley and Where is Her Lunchbox 
uh, were especially popular editions of this uh this, uh, this comic book franchise. Issue 338, Sticky Mitt Takes Shirley's Lunchbox, uh, was not one of their more popular issues. In this is- issue, uh, Pootie has hired Sticky Mitt to be in charge of Pootie and Juju's finances because Sticky Mitt asked to do it, and Pootie didn't think to check if he had any kind of you know accounting background. Sticky Mitt asked for the key to Pootie and Juju's uh, safety deposit box to make sure that, quote, everything was in order. And then after Pootie gave him the key, he wiped them out, and they never saw him again. And Juju was less than pleased. He took all our money, Pootie. And Pootie was like, he seemed like a good guy, Juju. And then Juju was like, accountants don't have names like Sticky Mitt. Well, now I know, said Pootie. And then Juju, of course, too little, too little, Pootie. And the two-page publication was an enormous flop. And if you're a fairly new listener, Pootie and Juju, uh, they are real, but only here in the Suckverse, uh, not in the rest of the world. No, Sticky Mitt. <laughs> no, no one cared about Sticky Mitt after his, after his, uh, his debut. Uh, Batman premiered less than a year later in May of 1939 in Detective Comics, number 27. Created by artist Bob Kane, writer Bill Finger. Mr. Finger! Good work. (laughs) Uh, Batman Like Superman would become part of the uh, DC Universe back when they uh, initially published Superman and Batman. They were known, of course, as National Allied Publications. And the initials DC, as you may have just guessed, come from that company's popular initial series, Detective Comics, DC. That series published 881 issues between 1937 and 2011, the longest continuously published comic book in U.S. history. In October 1939, Marvel Comics' predecessor, Timely Publications, released uh, Marvel Comics number 1, which included The Human Torch, Angel, Prince Namor, The Submariner, along with Fawcett Comics superhero Captain Marvel, DC Comics Flash, and Green Lantern debuted in 1940, Marvel's Captain America and DC's Wonder Woman, First published the following year. Uh, the period from 1938 to the mid-1940s represents the peak of comic book popularity, whereas current monthly sales of popular comic book titles hover around 100,000 copies. In the early 1940s, Superman, Batman, Captain Marvel, uh, those titles each regularly sold in the range of 1.5 million copies a month. Super impressive considering the population of the United States was 132 million in 1940. It's more than doubled to over 327 million now. So per capita, comics in the 1940s, way more popular than now. Uh, After World War II ended, superhero comic book sales plummeted. Many titles were canceled. After winning the war against Nazis, I guess kids weren't thinking about heroes as much. Through the mid-1950s, the void was filled by comic books containing more serious themes about crime, romance, Western, horror. Throughout this period, comic books based on uh, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, you know, the most famous heroes of the bunch, they retained a modest audience, continued to be published, but didn't do great. Some of the other superheroes would resurface later as the industry itself again became more popular. Okay, now let's talk about the Silver Age of comic books, 1956 through 1970. Comic books uh, took some heat during this age because some insane moralists decided that all these cartoons were corrupting America's youth. Mass men in tights were shredding the very moral fabric of this great nation. These damn comics were, were playing right into the Soviets' commie hands. We're going to end up with a nation of left-leaning, big red sympathizers. They keep looking at these tunes. Oh, my heck. What about the children? Uh, two years before the Silver Age had begun in 1954, a psychiatrist named Frederick Wortham, wackadoodle, uh, wrote in his best-selling book, Seduction of the Innocent. Oh, God. The comic books of all types were corrupting the youth of America. Wortham posited that Superman represented fascist ideals. How dare he save everybody? Batman and Robin, they promoted a homosexual lifestyle. It's two dudes hanging out in tights. Why don't they just get over with and suck each other's dicks all the time? 
Wonder Woman was a lesbian with a bondage fixation. And straight boys, you know, young men across the nation thought, where the fuck is that issue of Wonder Woman? I've been beaten off to modest depiction of her fighting bad guys for years. And apparently there's some hot lesbian bondage Wonder Woman action out there. Hey, Lucifina. Uh, members of Congress were so alarmed because <laughs> this was the 1950s and in some ways, in my opinion, people were out of their goddamn minds. Uh, they were so alarmed, they called uh, Wortham to testify before the Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency. Gosh, dad, what about the children, you guys? Look at Robin's bulge. He clearly wants to explore Batman's Batcave. Yes, fellas, that Batcave. The one with the hemorrhoids instead of the stalactites. Young, impressionable minds might see that. And then when they get older, experience the type of sexual pleasure they prefer in the privacy of their own homes and literally not bother anyone else on earth that doesn't go way out of their way to be bothered. Gat zoinks, crime fighters, kaboom, clang, pow, auga. Sensing public backlash, worried about government censorship during the McCarthyism era, comic book publishers created the Comics Code Authority in 1954 in order to show Congress they could self-regulate their industry. They didn't need to be censored. They could calm down all, all of those very worried 1950s parents, all those moral leaders. The code set a number of requirements for comic books that are ridiculous. Uh, we'll look at them more in depth during Stanley's timeline. But some of these rigid codes included uh, that, quote, in every instance, good shall triumph over evil. And if crime is depicted, it shall be a sordid and unpleasant activity. Another rule was that females shall be drawn realistically without exaggeration of any physical qualities. Yeah, easy on the boobs, nerds. My God. Once you start jerking off before you draw these barely dressed, tiny waisted, top heavy heroines. Uh, plus, there was this GM vampires and vampirism, ghouls. Cannibalism and werewolfism are prohibited. Imagine these people back then, like some congressmen. <laughs> no more werewolves, for flip's sake. They start letting kids read about werewolves. Well, <laughs> then, you know, it's next they're going to just start thinking about, uh, well, you know, yeah. Come on, uh, they're gonna they're gonna think that they're they are werewolves, you know? Just how kids who read King Lear suddenly start thinking they're European royalty. You know how it is. Just how kids who read the sports pages start thinking they're famous athletes. The more I think about it, we need to, we need to stop letting kids read. That's the real problem, the reading. Uh, this code was a real bummer for the comic book industry because it just fucking took their balls off. Right? Basically, it canceled, you know, various horror, crime, romance titles. You know, their mere existence now broke the rules. And it kept other titles from, you know, having good fucking stories. Comic book companies reacted to this code by taking less creative chances. They started focusing more on publishing comic books featuring superheroes from the previous golden age, like the Flash, who is not Flash Gordon, by the way. Did not know that until the research uh, for this week. Uh, let, let's get super nerdy for a second. A lot of people like me, uh, until just, you know, the other day, thought that uh, Flash and Flash Gordon, same dude. Nope. Flash Gordon originally came uh, out back in 1934. And in 1934, it was just a comic strip. Flash Gordon was just a handsome polo player, Yale graduate who got kidnapped by a mad professor, flown in a rocket to the planet Mongo. And he had many an adventure on Mongo for years. He was created to, to compete with Buck Rogers, actually. He's supposed to be a, another cool, handsome, space-traveling dude. More, more Captain Kirk than the speedy Flash. The Flash came out in January 1940, and the Flash has the ability to run, move, think extremely fast, use superhuman reflexes, basically tell various laws of physics to go fuck themselves. Uh, the original Flash was Jay Garrick, a college student who gained his speed by being thrown into a massive grain silo full of methamphetamines, and he was forced to eat, snort, and smoke his way out. 
And it made him super fast and twitchy, as meth, as meth might do, you know? No, he became super fast by working on some sciencey stuff and inhaling some hard water vapor. Some gases got into his bloodstream, you know, and got zoinks. Boom, bam, slam. Next thing you know, he's super fast. It doesn't make any more sense than Spider-Man being able to swing around New York City because he got bit by a spider. It's just, you know, it's, just, it's a backstory that was just completed in like four panels. Got some water, inhaled the fumes, super fast. Uh, the Flash comes uh, back in October of 1956. His return marks the beginning of the Silver Age. Superhero comic books see a renewed level of commercial success, right? Conservatives, 50s parents are able to buy their kids comics featuring the same wholesome superheroes they grew up with. Whew, no werewolves. Oh, goodness me. The late 1950s through the 1960s saw a change from dark and supernatural comic book themes to the other end of the spectrum with, you know, books containing silly plots, high degree of cheese thanks to that code. Dumb rules create dumb stories. But the children were safe. And oh my heck, that's all that really matters. The next age of comics was the Bronze Age. Took place between 1970 and 1985. The counterculture movement. Talking about it again. Keeps coming up in these sucks. I love it. We've talked about it in so many sucks now. 1960s, 1970s, cultural pushback against stupid fucking McCarthyism. God, I'd like to tra- travel back in time and kick that guy in the nuts a whole bunch. Uh, you know, Vietnam War, conservative, trust the government, don't rock the boat at work or anywhere else in life, tuck your shirt into your pants, that kind of culture in the 1950s. This pushback against that affected the entire culture of America, including naturally comic books. People are letting their hair grow long and they're, and they're, and they're writing, some, writing some cool stories and drawing some sweet boobs again. The Bronze Age ushered in a more realistic style within the comic books as younger generations of artists, or the younger generation of artists, excuse me, including Neil Adams, John Byrne, George Perez, Frank Miller, and others replaced many of the previous generation of artists who had helped to create the superhero comic books of the 30s and 40s. The beginning of the Bronze Age of comic books marked by the shocking murder of Peter Parker's girlfriend, Gwen Stacy, at the hands of the Green Goblin in Amazing Spider-Man issue 121 and 122, June, July, 1973. I should have said issues. Uh, seeing an innocent killed and the hero unable to stop it shook up the industry. This was able to happen because in 1971, the Comics Code Authority relaxed some of its standards, you know, with this counterculture movement. They even went as far as to state, quote, vampires, ghouls, and werewolves shall be permitted to be used when handled in the classic tradition. All right, hippies, fine. You can have your werewolves. Fucking have them. Put them in your comic books and just flush the entire goddamn country down the toilet, I guess. Then, of course, because of this, you know, this uh, relaxation of the rule, the zombie apocalypse kicked off in the 80s, and we've been living in a dystopian nightmare ever since, and I'm recording this basement, or this <laughs> this podcast, God, from a deep underground abandoned missile silo that was converted into a doomsday bunker, right? They were right. Those moralists were right. Of course, of course, that didn't happen. A uh, more lenient attitude towards this subject matter uh, allowed to be used in comics allowed for the return of the horror comic genre, titles such as The Tomb of Dracula. Uh, 1972, and Ghost Rider and Tales of the Zombie in 1973 were published. Ghost Rider, pretty sick superhero, by the way. Pretty dark. At night, and went around evil, Blaze finds his flesh consumed by hellfire, causing his head to become a flaming skull. He rides a fiery motorcycle. He wheels blasts of hellfire from his body. He looks a lot like, you know, uh, Nick Cage or Nicolas Cage. Uh, usually from his skeletal hands. No, he, he played him in a movie, obviously, later. Uh, in order to save the life of his dad, he'd given his soul to Satan. In order to have his powers, you know, uh, he was bonded with the demon Zarathos. I'm pretty sure some parents freaked out 
when they found their kids reading Ghost Rider. Are you trying to go to hell, Jimmy? Why? Why do you insist on reading these devil comics? What did I do? Have I not been a good mother? What did I do to push my sweet baby towards the Dark Lord? Uh, additional supernatural characters like the Swamp Thing and Blade were introduced in the early 70s. Socially conscious stories became numerous in the 70s as well, most famously during the collaborative adventures of Green Lantern and Green Arrow as they fought against racism, pollution, social just injustice. The Green Arrow also confronted his sidekick, Speedy's heroin addiction, while Iron Man came to terms with his alcoholism. They're getting real. Also realized that the vast majority of the superheroes were Caucasian. A lot of non-Caucasian readers, you know, realizing they probably wouldn't mind seeing their racial likenesses depicted in some kind of comic book page. DC and Marvel introduced a number of ethnic superheroes like Storm, Black Lightning, Blade, the Green Lantern, Jon Stewart. Okay, now let's move over to the Dark Age, 1985 to 1996. Kicking off the Dark Age of comic books was the publication of the monumental series Crisis on Infinite Earths. To commemorate DC Comics' 50th anniversary, DC published Crisis on Infinite Earths as a 12-issue comic book event. In this series, DC planned to clear up decades of plot inconsistencies as well as bring together conflicting characters from the Golden Age and the Silver Age. The idea was to have multiple alternate realities brought together to make one consistent reality, reconciling how Green Lantern Alan Scott from the 40s could exist in the same reality as Green Lantern Hal Jordan of the 60s. How could the Justice Society of the 40s with their Green Lantern exist at the same time as the Justice League of the 1960s with a different Green Lantern? To solve some of these inconsistencies, certain major characters were killed off. Characters long out of play were brought back with new storylines. It was super cool. Ultimately, Crisis on Infinite Earths was a major success for DC Comics and gave comic book fans comic book boners, weens and lady weens alike. During this period, anti-heroes became popular. Dark, pessimistic stories reigned as an Alan Moore's classic Watchmen, published by DC in 1986 and 1987. Where a world looks down on once mighty superheroes, or in Frank Miller's Batman, The Dark Knight Returns, where a 55-year-old Batman has retired from crime fighting, leaving criminals to terrorize Gotham City in a four-issue 1986 DC run. Wish I had time to reread The Watchmen right this past week. The Watchmen, you know, I, I use Dr. Manhattan from Watchmen as an inspiration when coming up with the icon based on my face and the Time Suck logo, the white eyes. Big fan of that series. And Frank Miller's Batman, The Dark Knight Returns has been on my reading list for a long time. During the Dark Age, readers witnessed Superman dying, Batman becoming critically injured, Green Lantern Hal Jordan slaughtering his fellow Green Lanterns. The comic book code had been completely tossed out the fucking window. Dark Age also saw the publication of Mouse, Art Spiegelman's moving autobiographical tale of a Jewish family in Poland living through the reign of Nazi Germany. The first graphic novel to win the Pulitzer Prize for literature. Uh, we, have a, we have a copy here in the Suck Dungeon, thanks to a thoughtful lister. I wish I had time to read that one this past week, too. Why can't I crank out the research for the show in like 30 minutes, right? If I could just take, you know, the, the script keeper's research and add to it in like half an hour, and then just be done. I need the Flash's powers. I need to apply the Flash powers to episode construction. Uh, the Dark Age ended with a massive sales slump, industry downsizing caused by a speculator's market where excess merchandise, too many collector's editions, too many series being produced, quality fell victim to quantity, and the market became oversaturated. Sales slump contributed to the Chapter 11 bankruptcy of Marvel Comics in 1996. How crazy is that to think about now, considering how successful they are right now? Uh, the Dark Age was not only gloomy and serious for fans, they even killed Superman for fuck's sake. It was also uh, dark for co uh, comic companies, you know, bottom lines. And then the modern age of comics kicked off in 96. The publication of Alex Ross's Kingdom Come in 96, which harkened back to the optimism and strength of Silver Age superheroes, marks the beginning 
of the modern age, according to the experts. During this period, comic book publishers attempted to rectify their past mistakes by creating a leaner business plan, putting more effort into a fewer number of projects. 1997, the George Clooney, Chris O'Donnell, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Uma Thurman, Alicia Silverstone, and more DC superhero film, Batman and Robin, went big with the resurgence of uh, comics with a, with a budget of $160 million. And it was profitable, making a profit of almost 70 mil at the box office, but universally panned by critics and audience members hated it. Its planned sequel was canceled and this film could have crippled the beginning of the comic book modern age resurgence. But then the X-Men came along and saved the fucking day. Bam, pow, zap, gosh dang. Boom, boom. Here, here, pew, pew. 2000, the massive box office success of the X-Men really helped repopularize the comic book industry. Uh, based on Marvel character Stan Lee, uh, that Stan Lee and Jack Kirby created, the X-Men came out in 2000, shot on a budget of $75 million, less than half of Batman and Robin, made well over $200 million in box office profit, and also spawned two sequels and then many spinoffs. Three Wolverine films, four X-Men prequels, two Deadpool, uh, Deadpool films and counting. Twelve films so far shot on a total budget of $1.67 billion. And these movies have made over $6 billion at the box office. Over $3 billion and $300 million in box office profit alone. I wonder how many other projects, comic-based or non-comic-based, ended up being launched by 20th Century Fox Thanks to the yeah, the film's distributor uh, or the film's distributor, thanks to the insane amount of money like they were able to make uh, off the Marvel X-Men you know, universe movies alone. How many mansions were bought by producers, studio execs, actors, writers, etc., due to these movies? Gadzook, Splat, Kablooey, Mother Why. Popularity hasn't really slowed down since the debut of the first X-Men film. Online retailers like Amazon.com have, have really hurt the actual business of brick-and-mortar comic book shops, so retail sales, you know, maybe not great as far as going in the store and buying a, a comic book. You know, but the big comic book dogs, Marvel and DC, man, they're making more money than ever, or at least Disney and Warner Brothers are, Marvel and DC's respective parent companies. Now that we have a basic understanding of the history of comic books, let's take a peek at the rivalry between Stan Lee's Marvel Comics and its main competitor, DC Comics. Look at a bit more comic-related info, and then we'll jump into Stan's life. Marvel was the first of uh, two franchises to really do a ton of cross-pollination, featuring numerous superheroes. After seeing how well things worked out with the X-Men, Marvel went even bigger into cinema, other non-printed forms of media, the Marvel Cinematic Universe populated by the Avengers, which includes damn near all of their superheroes, including Stan Lee's Hulk, Iron Man, Thor, filled with stories crossing from the big screen to Netflix to comic books, has uh, certainly been a formula for financial success. The Marvel Cinematic Universe films have been in production since 2007, 23 films have been released so far. At least 14 other films currently in some stage of development. And collectively, these movies have grossed over $22.5 billion at the box office. Box office alone. Against a total budget of roughly $4.5 billion uh, for roughly $18 billion in box office international profit. DC hasn't went quite this big so far. Although in 2016, they released Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice. It featured a ton of DC characters and did very well. Budget of under $300 million, Gross of almost $900 million. So, you know, profit of around $600 million. And you can bet DC will soon start kicking out one movie after another after another until they start losing money. That's how it works. Uh, there's been so much money made off of comic books in Hollywood in the last decade. And then there's video games. 2011's Batman Arkham City. 2018's Spider-Man hit the top of the sales charts when they were released. 
It won critical acclaim. Uh, Stanley Spider-Man has spawned numerous popular video games, such as Spider-Man Web of Shadows from 2008, PlayStation 2's classic Ultimate Spider-Man. Uh, there was the Incredible Hulk, Ultimate Destruction. Comics and their longer, more uh, complex counterparts, graphic novels have become a massive part of the Western world's culture. In total, over 600 million copies of Superman comics have been sold around the world. Batman has sold 460 million copies. Stan Lee and Steve Ditko's, you know, Spider-Man has sold over 360 million copies. Stanley's X-Men sold over 270 million copies. Numerous authors and illustrators have had a hand in the immense success of comics and comic book characters, but no single person has had as much success or been as influential in having helped create so many different characters who continue to live on and be immensely profitable and reimagined in so many different forms of media as Stan Lee. Think about all the money I just talked to you about, all the movies, all the comic books, all the ages of comics. Stan Lee, you know, worked through uh, all of them, basically, uh, except for maybe like the very, very first one. And, and all that at one time, you know, all these like characters and stuff at one time were just like uh, random ideas in some guy's head. And, and, and a lot of instances in Stan Lee's head, you know, just sitting around in, a, in some office, just, hey, what do you think about this? That's where it all started. Yeah, and arguably, yeah, no one had more of those ideas than Stanley. Giant cinematic worlds born from the imagination of just one individual, at least at the very beginning. I know we'll talk about collaborations here soon. Uh, let, let, so let's get to know this individual. In today's Time Suck timeline, right after a word from today's first sponsor, uh, today's Time Suck is brought to you again by Manscaped. People in possession of testicles, listen up. It's time to gear up. It's time to get yourself the gift, right? Shaving this holiday season. I'm talking about the Manscaped Perfect Package 2.0. I got the perfect package uh, last month from Manscaped. My balls have been on museum display quality ever since. For the first time in my life, I've been spraying them down with ball toner. Feels so good. Makes them feel crisp like a pair of perfectly ripe boxer apples. The perfect package comes with an awesome pair of boxers, the lawnmower electric ball trimmer. I've trimmed my entire ball area twice now. It's the best. I've got to bring my travel bag to Tacoma. My balls felt a little uh, mangy, prickly, not toned, but sad. When I forget my Manscaped kit, I end up traveling with a pair of sad five o'clock shadow balls. A couple of dirty trouser hobos hitching a ride to some distant land. I don't care for it. I like my man parts Manscaped, and you will too. Manscaped's perfect package 2.0, the perfect gift this holiday season. Literally everything you need to keep trimmed, right? Cut free, smelling, smelling nice down there. Comes with a lawnmower 2.0, proprietary advanced skincare technology so it won't snag. It's awesome. It's waterproof. You can use it in the shower. The perfect package 2.0 also includes the crop preserver an anti-chafing ball deodorant and moisturizer, boxer briefs that'll keep you feeling fresh all day. Manscaped products are now available at Target stores. Tis the season to Manscaped. So get yourself, your dad, your brother, your friends, the best gift of all, uh, gift of all, the Manscaped Perfect Package 2.0. Meat Sacks will receive 20% off plus free shipping when you use the code TIMESUCK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off plus free shipping when you use the code TIMESUCK at manscaped.com. A link in the episode description, and, and I'm serious, this stuff, it really is great. If you're looking for like a fun gift for any guy in your life, uh, you will not regret this. I think it's funny and extremely functional. It's a little spa treatment for your little grundle area. Do it, do it. Uh, now time to dig into the life of the man who had the biggest balls in the superhero game, Stan motherfucking Lee. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. On December 22nd, 1922, Stanley Martin Lieber was born to Jack and Celia Lieber in New York City, 
New York State. Stan Lee's father, Jack, was a dress cutter by trade and not a rich or well-connected man, to say the least. Stan's mother, Celia, was a homemaker. Lee entered the world in the middle of the jazz age and prohibition, the ensuing speakeasy culture, the beginning of an economic recovery following a post-World War I economic dip. Stan's father, Jack, was born in 1885 and his wife, Celia Solomon Lee, were born in 1890. Both were Romanian Jewish immigrants who had arrived in New York in the early years of the 20th century and then met in the city. Jack and Celia were barely able to afford to live at 777 West End Avenue when Stan was born. The building at the corner of the West 98th Street or of West 98th Street was built in 1910. And the West End Avenue was becoming a coveted address among the rising Jewish middle class in New York. High rise luxury buildings like 777 were replacing the smaller tenements that had previously lined the avenue. The neighborhood was ideally located for Jack uh, Lieber's work in the Garment Center, which encompassed much of Manhattan's West 30s and around 7th Avenue. However, Jack struggled to earn a living as a garment worker and was chronically unemployed starting around 1926 when Stan was just three or four years old. The family soon moved to one of the more affordable regions of Upper Manhattan, Washington Heights, and the Liebers spent the next 20 years bouncing around between apartments in the Heights and similar working-class immigrant neighborhoods in the Bronx. According to Gene Goodman, a relative of Stan's quoted in the book Stan Lee and the Rise and Fall of the American Comic Book, money was scarce in the Lieber home, and the family often accepted financial help from Celia's sisters, who were better off. Jack was intelligent, but difficult and demanding. He was exacting with his boys. Celia, on the other hand, was warm and nurturing to the point of self-sacrifice. The demanding father and the persecuted mother, that made the atmosphere difficult. Stan Lee would later say this of his father, My father was not a good businessman. And he was not lucky. Most of the time I knew him, he just wasn't working. He couldn't find a job. He'd be sitting at home reading the want ads. I felt sorry for him. I thought he was a schmuck. I didn't respect him. I stopped loving him. A lot of the villains I came up with were based on him. Dr. Doom, the Green Goblin, Vulture, all based on my father. Lizard Guy, Professor Squirrel, Butterfly Boomerang, all based on him. Spoon Flicker, Lice Man, the Dingleberry Express, all based on my father, Jack. Uh, everyone's pretty sure I'm just making all that up now, uh, right? <laughs> I just I, I just made everything up uh, after Stan saying he felt sorry for his dad. He didn't hate his dad or base villains after him, and there were no villains named Liceman or Professor Squirrel or the Dingleberry Express. Too fun, though, uh, if there was. Uh, I like thinking about him. Well, if it isn't Spider-Man, I see you've gotten stuck right into one of my Dingleberries. God damn it, Dingleberry Express. When I get loose, I'm going to have to wash my whole outfit again. I just got back from the cleaners, you weird, stinky asshole. Oh, I'm no asshole, Spider-Man, but I do live in one, and soon you will too. I'll turn all of Queens into one big dingleberry jungle. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of shit I think about when I'm working late at night on these sucks. Uh, December 28th, 1931, when Stan has just turned nine years old, his little bro, future co-conspirator Larry is born. Sweet little Lair Bear. Larry would go on to work in the comic industry for almost as long as his big brother Stan, two lifelong comic industry professionals coming from the same family. Larry would even go on to help co-create the Iron Man, Thor, and the Ant-Man. As these two brothers grew up, they noted that their parents rarely got along and were frequently anxious and arguing mostly about money. 1932, while still just nine years old, Stan went to see the Warner Brothers melodrama The Mouthpiece. In this movie, actor Warren William plays an aggressive prosecutor, Vincent Day, who unwittingly sends an innocent man to the electric chair so traumatized his day that he becomes a defense attorney and ends up becoming corrupt, getting wealthy criminals who are very much guilty off the hook. His life becomes complicated and tragic, not unlike the melodramas that would years later be found in Stan Lee's comics. 
The mouthpiece was the only specific movie Lee singled out in his 2002 memoir, Excelsior. Said it left a huge impression on him. Uh, As far as school goes, Lee described himself as an average student who couldn't wait to get out of school, saying, I didn't hate being in school, but I just kept wishing it was over and I could get into the real world because I wasn't studying anything I was particularly interested in. Uh, Pretty inspirational message there. You know, while I for sure don't think this message should be interpreted as Stan Lee didn't care about school, so, you know, you shouldn't fucking care about it either. You don't need it. Uh, I do think it's a nice reminder that just because traditional subjects don't interest you, you know, if that's the case, doesn't mean you won't find as much or more career success than other students who do love school and who excel in those traditional subjects. Lee recalled reading several uh, several popular kids' book series when he was uh, in school, including The Hardy Boys, The Boys' Allies, Allies, Tom Swift. Two of his favorite series, Jerry Todd and Poppy Ott, were written by a man named Leo Edwards. He especially loved Edwards' series because they had more humor than the others. And he noted, best of all was at the end of Jerry Todd's books, um, yeah, the Jerry Todd books, there were letters from readers with answers by the author. I thought that was so wonderful. It made me feel I was part of this thing. And I knew him. Stan would certainly be influenced by this when he, uh, you know, when it was his turn to interact with fans of his work. Some of the other authors Stan loved to read included H.G. Wells, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Mark Twain, Edgar Rice Burroughs. As he got older, he discovered Edgar Allan Poe, Charles Dickens, Edmund Rostand, Omar uh, Khayyam, Emile Zola, plus Shakespeare in the Bible. I think my biggest influence was Shakespeare, he would say who was my God. I loved Shakespeare. To me, he was the complete writer. I love that he said that. Uh, Just like Shakespeare created timeless stories and characters whose tales would be told over and over and reimagined, Lee has done the same thing. Lee also loved the stories that were being told on the radio when he was a kid. Listening to those stories was a positive bonding experience he had with his family. He'd say, Sunday night in our house was family night. We'd have delicatessen. We'd have hot dogs, beans, sauerkraut if times were good. Sunday night, we listened to the comedians. There was Fred Allen and Jack Benny. Edgar Bergen, Charlie McCarthy, there was W.C. Fields. The funny thing to me was when it was time for the family to gather around and listen to the radio, all the chairs were turned facing the radio. Everybody sat looking at the radio just as if it was television. (laughs) I love it. I can totally imagine that. I do that sometimes when I can't hear something on the uh, radio in the car. I will stare at it as if just staring, and not even at the speaker, staring at the actual radio itself, which makes no sense, as if somehow that would help me hear it better. Uh, Yeah, this future storyteller loves stories. Of course he did. Not surprisingly, young Lee also liked comic strips, both in the newspapers and in the collected editions that made up his first comic books. He would later say that his favorite comics were the ones by Milton Caniff, Terry and the Pirates. That was the big one. And then there was Lil Abner. I liked the humor stuff. I liked the adventure stuff. Uh, he also uh, liked works including the uh, Cats and Jammer Kids, Skippy, Dick Tracy, Smitty, and the Gumps. <laughs> As he said in the uh, 2000 documentary with great power, creating comic books was never part of my childhood dream. I never thought of that at all. And if that sounds surprising to you, remember that when Stan Lee was growing up, comics as we know of them today were just barely getting going, right? The first Superman comic didn't come out until Stan was 15 years old. Uh, Lee was raised Jewish, but more in a cultural sense than in a religious sense. He said his family was not especially religious. Uh, While Stan didn't have any substantive Jewish education, he did have a bar mitzvah. As he recalled in 2006, my father insisted I be bar mitzvahed, and I took a crash course in learning to read Hebrew, all of which I'm sorry to say I've forgotten by now. My parents didn't have much money at the time, and I remember during the bar mitzvah ceremony at the temple, there was my father and me and maybe two other people that wandered in. That was the whole thing. Uh, by the time Stan entered high school, the Liebers were living at 1720 University Avenue in the Bronx uh, University Heights neighborhood. 
It was a one-bedroom apartment with the boys sharing the bedroom while the, his parents, you know, slept on a fold-out couch. Man, kids got the room, parents got the couch. Clearly, finan- family struggled financially throughout Stan's childhood, as he said. Uh, Stan attended DeWitt Clinton High School during his teenage years, where he excelled in writing. Clinton High, a, a enormous institution, sprawling campus, the all-boys school at the time, uh, fed by a large part of the Bronx's population, and at its, at its peak, it hosted 12,000 students. 12,000. That's a small city made up of entirely high school boys. Sounds like a nightmare. Way too much testosterone under one roof. Probably a fair amount of BO too. But that whole place smelled like a giant dirty sock. Uh, Clinton High has a very impressive alumni roster. One of Lee's peers was the author James Baldwin, born two years after Stan. One of Baldwin's novels, If Beale Street Could Talk, was adapted into an Academy Award winning dramatic film in 2018. The playwright, Patty uh, Chievsky went to Clinton High, was born the year after Stan. He's still the only person to have won three solo Academy Awards for writing both adapted and original screenplays. His third award was for the famous 1976 film Network. Another alumni born the year after Stan was the photographer Richard Avedon. An obituary published in the New York Times in 2004 for Richard said that his high fashion, or no, his fashion and portrait photographs helped define America's image of style, beauty, and culture for the last half century. Uh, Clinton High School even kicked out some other comic book titans. Bob Kane and Bill Finger, Mr. Finger, the creators of Batman, graduated from Clinton just a few years before Stan started going to school there. Uh, Spider-Man and Batman, both created by Clinton High School products. Will Eisner went to Clinton High, graduated about two years before Stan showed up. This guy was so influential to the development of the comic book industry that the most prestigious award a comic book author or illustrator can receive is named after him, the Eisner Award. Will helped popularize the term graphic novel in the late 70s. Erwin Hasen, creator of the popular Dondi comic strip that ran in more than 100 newspapers from 1955 to 1986, also a Clinton High School graduate, leaving when Stan showed up, and on and on and on. Uh, In his Clinton yearbook, Lee is listed as a member of a number of organizations. He worked for the school paper known as the Magpie, where he remembers pulling a prank. He said, I must have been a little bit crazy even then. Because I remember they had a school magazine called The Magpie, and it was published in a room called The Tower, which had a very high ceiling. And there was no way anybody could ever reach that ceiling. One day it was being painted, and one of the painters had left the ladder when they went out for lunch. So I climbed up and wrote, Stan Lieber is God on the ceiling. You know what? And in a way, Stan Lieber was God. He became a godlike creator, gave life to so many characters who seemed just as real to me and many others as actual people. 1938, when Stan was 15, he took first place in a Biggest News of the Week contest run in the New York Herald Tribune for three weeks in a row. One biography does claim this actually didn't happen. It's a bit of a myth-building on Stan's part, and they actually only won a small seventh-place prize and a couple honorable mentions in three different weeks. I choose to believe Stan in this instance. I mean, considering all of his highly you know, documented accomplishments, I, I don't see why he would choose to make up winning some unimportant high school contest. I mean, maybe he did. I don't think so. Lee also would claim that the editor asked him to stop submitting after his third win so that someone else could have a chance to win and that he should consider a career in writing. And he said that experience changed his life, set him on a path to becoming a writer. No, clearly something he's thought a lot about and it was a pivotal moment for him. And he did go on to make a career out of writing. So again, I'm going I'm to take his word on this one. Uh, Lee also remembered losing his virginity in high school. He remembered some of it, at least uh, later saying that at some point in high school, he was initiated into the mysteries and pleasures of sex. One of my great regrets is that I cannot remember the name of the daughter of the neighborhood candy store proprietor with whom I lost my virginity. 
I love that quote so much. And not just because he says proprietor. Uh, an accomplished older man reflect on his life and what is one of his major regrets? Not being able to remember the name of the neighborhood candy store owner's daughter who he lost his virginity to. That's one of your major regrets. You have lived an amazing life. Do I wish I would have spent more time with my daughter? No, we hung out plenty. Should I have been kinder to my wife? No, I treated her great and we had a long, loving marriage. Should I have worked harder to accomplish more? No, I killed it. I created some of the most beloved characters in history and I'm adored the world over. But I do have one major regret. There was this redheaded girl with a tight little ass and firm, freckled hot tatas. She took my virginity in her dad's shop when it was closed for the night and I came in between the root beer barrels and the Tootsie Rolls. And I'd erase Thor and the Hulk if I could just remember her name. Uh, While well, attending Clinton High School, attending, uh, Lee had a number of part-time jobs. He sold subscriptions to the New York Herald Tribune to fellow students. He delivered sandwiches for Manhattan's Jack Mays Pharmacy near Rockefeller Center. He had a good work ethic. I like it. June of 1939, just a few weeks before World War II kicked off, Lee graduated Clinton High School at only 16 and a half years old. Right after graduation, he joined the Works Progress Administration's Federal Theater Project. The WPA was a part of FDR's New Deal, a program born out of the Great Depression to fund live artistic performances and entertainment programs. Lee often spoke of being employed by the WPA at the same time that Orson Welles was there. Orson Welles, a star writer, director, and producer of that famous film Citizen Kane, amongst others. Although the two didn't know each other, worked together. Uh, Lee followed a girl he was dating into the WPA, and while he was there, he acted in a few plays, loved acting, but the pay was terrible, so he decided to quit. Also, the romance with the girl ended, you know, making leaving the, the WPA even easier. And I, and I also love that he followed a girl into a job uh, right after high school. I, I would love to see the stats, stats that I'm sure will never be gathered, uh, on how many straight dudes have ended up in a career because of chasing a girl or switched majors because of a girl, or, or studied something mostly because a girl they liked thought it was cool. How many dudes live where they live mostly or entirely because they chased a girl there, or because one of their male ancestors had chased a girl there? Right, thinking about all this reminds me that in some ways, we meat sacks are just another member of the animal kingdom. So complex in some ways, so simple in others. Male mammals chasing female mammals, Due to that basic desire to fulfill a reproductive urge, man, instincts. Can't totally escape all those instincts. Uh, some of Lee's first jobs after high school included writing obituaries for a wire service. And that cracks me up only because I imagined him writing comic book style obituaries. Martin Hurwitz, a.k.a. Professor Cheeseburger, passed away in his home last Monday night, August 12th, 1939, after battling Dr. Heart Doom. For years, Professor Cheeseburger absorbed patty after cheese-covered patty, dissolving the evil cholesterolites in his powerful stomach acid of justice. Zap! Pow! Kaboom! And then, when he was napping and his guard was down, Dr. Hartdoom decided to hit him with one of his artery clog blasts. Wham! Zip! Pew! Gas shock horror! What will his family do now? Will Dr. Hartdoom work his way through the halls of Hervitz? Stay tuned, Doom fans. They say heart disease runs in families. Services will be held this Sunday at Temple Bethel Synagogue at 1 p.m. Smack, swoosh, zoom, auga. Uh, while Lee is still barely out of high school, uh, he gets what may not have seemed like a big break at the time, but it was a big break because it would lead to his career in comics. Lee's cousin on his mother's side, Gene Goodman, was married to Martin Goodman, a publisher who'd hit it big putting out a wide variety of pulp magazines. Martin would go on to be one of the most important people in Lee's life, but at this point, they didn't know each other that well. 
after leaving the WPA, Stan was looking for a new job and his cousin and her husband connected him with the Jewish communal organization's recently founded vocational service program. Through this program, Lee got a job writing publicity material for National Jewish Health, a tuberculosis hospital in Denver, Colorado, doing all the writing from New York. Lee later claimed that, I could never understand what I was trying to do with that job. Get people to get tuberculosis so they could go to the hospital? But anyway, the idea was that if anybody had tuberculosis, we had to convince them to go to that hospital. <laughs> I love a sense of humor. Uh, Lee's connection with the vocational service program didn't last long, but the job got him on Martin Goodman's radar. And he gave him some writing experience. It was, as they say, a start. After he'd written the needed publicity for material for National Jewish Health, he took a job as an office boy for H. Lisner Co., a Manhattan trouser manufacturer, where he felt exploited and unappreciated by supervisors who never even bothered to learn his name. I bet they knew his name later. Uh, this job would help his comic career, you know, as well, because it would motivate him to find something he loved and never have to take a job like that again. I'm sure you've heard that wonderful cliche, timing is everything. And while I wouldn't say it's everything, it is so important. And the timing of the birth of the comic book, you know, industry and Lee's search for a career after high school was perfect. As I said earlier, 1938, the first Superman was published. And in 1939, you know, the first Batman was published. Pulp publishers are now rushing to supply this new demand. Publishers like Martin Goodman. In the summer of 39, Goodman had launched a new comic book line under his timely publishing imprint, starting with Marvel Comics number one, you know, published on August 31st. And the comic book giant that would eventually uh, be named Marvel was creatively born. Marvel number one, wildly successful, selling close to a million copies, very few returns from news dealers. The cover promised action, mystery, adventure. Boy, his Marvel delivered over the years. The first comic introduced, among other characters, the Submariner, the Human Torch. I said that earlier. Uh, Marvel Comics number one and subsequent timely titles have been produced by Goodman or, or yeah, were being produced by Goodman for an outside packager, Funnies Incorporated. But Goodman wanted his own in-house comic book line that would be produced by staffers and freelancers working directly for him. And to accomplish this, in early 1940, he hired two young men, two skilled writers and artists who were just starting to make a name for themselves in the still young comic book business, editor Joe Simon and art director Jack Kirby. Nerd boners, fully hard. Uh, Joe Simon would co-create Captain America. Jack Kirby would co-create Captain America with Joe Simon and with Stan Lee. He would co-create the Fantastic Four, the X-Men, the Hulk, Black Panther, Thor, Iron Man, many more. Wham! Boom! Splat! Snaggerdoodles! Peanut butter. Uh, summer 1939, still 16-year-old Stan is hired. And he liked to joke uh, he was hired as a gopher for his cousin's husband's timely comics. Uh, actually, Stan wasn't just Gene Goodman's cousin. His mother's brother, Robbie Solomon, was married to Martin Goodman's sister, so he was actually double-related to the owner of Timely Comics. In many ways, Timely was a family affair with several of Martin's brothers working for the publishing operation. So the timing was good. And also there was that element of it's not what you know, it's who you know. You know, had Stan not been related to the Goodmans, would he have gotten that job, entered the new world of comic books? No, probably not. How different would our world look today? Stan became Joe Simon and Jack Kirby's all-around assistant and gopher. As he said, Jack was five years older than Stan. Joe was nine years older. Stan would go out to grab these guys' coffee and sandwiches. He would clean up their pages, you know, erase the uh, unnecessary pencil marks. He would do proofreading. Whatever he was asked to do, he would do it. Joe Simon would later recall, mostly we had Stan erasing the pencils off of the inked artwork and going out for coffee. He followed us around. We took him to lunch and he tried to be friends with us. When he didn't have anything to do, he would sit in a corner of the art department and play his little flute or piccolo driving Kirby nuts. I thought he was a cute kid. 
I love that he was sitting in a corner playing piccolo when he wasn't working on comic books. Like he couldn't have been more of a fucking dork. <laughs> I love it. Like, but like in the best way. Uh, and how fun, by the way, to have this job, you know, to work at this place when you're 16. Man, when I was 16, I was bagging groceries or working as a laborer in one of my dad's construction jobs, listening to pervy older dudes, you know, at both places, asking me what I was doing with the high school girls. Looking back, super, super creepy. Uh, sure, shit wasn't hanging out with cool artists who may have may have also been talking about stuff like that, but at least they were drawing cool stuff too. Would love to have that job. And Lee loved it. In late 1940, Simon and Kirby came up with what would be Timely's biggest hit, Captain America Comics number 1. The magazine went on sale in most areas in the U.S. Uh, around December 20th and flew off the shelves. By 1941, when Stan was 18, the nation was in patriotic frenzy with World War II getting into full swing. The Captain America character became so popular that they had to bring in some freelance artists to meet the demand for new stories. And they not, not only needed new stories to be illustrated, they needed new stories to be written. Thought up, uh, you know, thought up, imagined. And because of this demand, because of being in the right place at the right time, Stanley Lieber was given the chance to write some filler stories that Timely could publish while established writers worked on the bigger plot lines. And Stan did a great job. The first of the throwaway stories that Stan wrote was titled Captain America Foils the Traitor's Revenge. Captain America Comics number three, May 1941. Just two pages. Stanley Lieber didn't want to use his real name on the comic because he was still at this point planning on using his real name when he finally got around to writing that great American novel. And so he uh, chose to be credited as Stan Lee. Story has, uh, you know, two drawings by Jack Kirby. It was their first ever collaboration. Story was sandwiched in between the bigger stories of a demonic killer on the loose in Hollywood. Showbiz. And one about a giant Nazi strongman and another murderer who kills people while dressed up in a butterfly costume. Okay, weird and dark. I like it. Shortly after this publication, Kirby and Simon grew skeptical of how Goodman was running his business and sharing the profits. And they started to secretly work for DC Comics as well. And uh, Goodman found out and fired them both. And some think that Stan Lee ratted them out. Lee forever would insist that he did not. But according to Simon, Kirby always believed that Stan told Goodman on him. Simon, however, believed that Lee kept uh, their moonlighting a secret and that in the gossip-driven world of comics, it could have been any number of people who revealed what they were doing. Because I like Stan Lee. Again, I'm going to choose to believe that, uh, you know, his side in this situation. I'm going to choose to believe that he did not rat them out. We'll never know the real truth. Uh, because of this firing in November of 1941, Stanley is suddenly promoted to editor-in-chief a month before his 19th birthday. During this time, Stanley co-created the first character, or his first character, Jack Frost, who would last until 1946 when he was killed off, and then Jack Frost would be brought back years later, paired up with Captain America, uh, appearing in print at least as recently as 2014. Jack Frost had the ability to generate sub-freezing temperatures combined with ambient water vapor. He could create snow, sleet, ice for various effects such as propelling snow flurries at hurricane wind speeds or fashioning ice into very simple constructs such as spheres, bridges, or walls. He also had superhuman stamina, durability. Stan also co-created the Destroyer as well as Father Time, who both ended up in the Captain America world. He would come up with roughly 60 other characters during his time at Timely Comics just in that period alone. Lee's first official credit as editor appeared on Captain America number 12, published just a few weeks after his promotion in early January, 1942. And then immediately following this, World War II called, and on January 11th, 1942, Stan enlisted in the U.S. Army. He would serve from 1942 to 1945 as a member of the Signal Corps, where he would repair communications equipment like telephone poles and radios. Eventually, the fact that he had experience as a fictional author got him transferred to the training film division, where he wrote manuals, training films, slogans, even some cartoons for the Allied war effort. 
The military classification for his position was playwright, a title that only nine people were given during the war, which speaks greatly to his abilities. A few of the others were Frank Capra, the director of It's a Wonderful Life, and Theodore Geisel, Dr. fucking Seuss. Pretty good company. Timing may have worked out for him. You know, he may have been related to the right publisher, you know, about who you know, but he also had talent. Lots and lots of talents. This would have never worked if he didn't have that talent for the rest of his life and a, and a good work ethic. Uh, for the rest of his life, Stan would be extremely proud of his service and the people he served with in World War II, so much so that his last ever tweet was about Veterans Day and it read, thank you to all of America's veterans for your service. He would pass away the next day. Even while he was in the Army, Stan still worked for Timely Comics. He'd work for the military during the week. Stan would get a letter from the editors every Friday letting him know what they needed. Stan would spend the whole weekend writing the stories and then mail them back uh, the following Monday morning. It's rumored that he once had to break into the mailroom in order to get an envelope that hadn't been delivered to the right mailbox so he could meet his deadline. He was almost court-martialed for, for tampering. He would have gone to Leavenworth, but a colonel got him out of it. I really love this. More often than not, very successful people have a history of going above and fucking beyond to do what it takes to get to where they want to be. He could have told Timely that he'd get back to them after the war. Could have spent his weekends drinking, dating, recklessly enjoying his youth. Nope, it worked out. He got shit done. Bam, zap, pow. He was tenacious. Another trait of successful people, right? When an envelope wasn't delivered to the right place, he didn't just say, ah, well, what do you do? Nope, he risked a court-martial just so he could get his job done. And doing all that when he was so young, you know, he'd grown up watching his dad struggle financially throughout his entire childhood, guessing that really helped motivate him to take his job very seriously. Fuck, I love this dude's story. Stanley, get me fired up from beyond the grave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When the war ended in 1945, Stan returned home to New York and Timely Comics, which was now headquartered on the 14th floor, 14th floor, excuse me, of the Empire State Building. And before we dig into his post-war life, let's take a moment to share a word from our final sponsor. Time Suck is brought to you today by Felix Gray. Too much screen time can result in tired, dry eyes, headaches, blurry vision, trouble sleeping. For this week's suck, I was up super late for hopefully the last time in a long time, finishing my last out-of-town stand-up shows for 2019 this past weekend. I count the upcoming Spokane shows as being local. Uh, I didn't have a lot of time this past week to, to get jump uh, get a jump on this suck between travel, between six shows and three days in Tacoma. So I was up until 4 a.m. last night uh, getting it done. Got up at 7 a.m. Easily spent 16 hours yesterday staring at my MacBook screen. And my eyes feel fine. Am I tired? Yeah. Feel a little cray cray, a little crazy. I'm not a robot, but my eyes aren't dried out. They didn't turn into two little salt balls that someone crudely stuffed into my skull. Why? I wore my Felix Gray blue light glasses. Felix Gray glasses filter out 90% of high energy blue light and eliminate 99% of the harsh glare coming from screens. Unlike other brands who can use cheap blue light coatings that are ineffective and can chip or scratch, Felix Gray uses a proprietary blue light technology that's embedded directly in the lens. Available in prescription, non-prescription, and readers, Felix Gray has you covered with optical glasses for work, sleep glasses in the evening that are clinically proven to increase melatonin secretion when worn before uh, bedtime. Since I, since I started wearing Felix Gray's, much less tired eyes, less redness, less dryness. They don't feel like they're scratched. Why would you buy glasses from a company whose sole focus isn't making glasses? Felix Gray makes the best blue light glasses in the game. Go to felixglasses.com slash timesuck and get a pair of blue light glasses from the pros. Shipping returns free. That's F-E-L-I-X-G-R-A-Y glasses.com slash timesuck. Felixgrayglasses.com slash timesuck. Link in the episode description. All right. Now back to 1945 when everyone's glasses were shit. 
when no one had computer screens to look out because the internet did not exist and the world was terrible. Stan Lee has just returned home from his World War II assignment. He meets a very special girl, his muse, his Lucifina, the love of his life, a woman with the terribly unfortunate name of Joan Clayton Boocock. Uh-huh. Boocock. As in Boocock. Boocock. She was a hat model, which uh, reached me as a very part-time job. I doubt there's a lot of full-time hat models out there. Oh, she was British. She was beautiful, smart, funny. She was 10 months older than Stan. And when she met Stan, she was married to someone else. Uh, she met Stan while modeling in New York, while still being married to a man named Sanford Dorf Weiss. They'd gotten married during the war in 1943. were already separated. Lee's cousin had set uh, him up on a blind date with a different model at the agency Joan worked at. When Lee went to the modeling agency to meet his intended date, Joan answered the door. Uh, and upon seeing her, he immediately professed his love for her. You'd be embarrassed by this later. Apparently, he just told her, like, right away, I love you. And also told her that he had been drawing her face since childhood, which is adorable and creepy as shit. Right? It's kind of adorable because they did get married, you know, and uh, they would live happily ever after. But if she wouldn't have been into him, how creepy is that? I mean, can you imagine opening up your door, strangers there, somebody who's come over to date your roommate, they immediately tell you that they love you and then also tell you that they've been drawing your face since childhood. That's something either an artist says or a serial killer or both. Lucky, you know, luckily, Joan ended up marrying a good dude and not having a dude uh, wear her fucking face skin for a mask like Ed Gein. Just weeks after meeting on December 5th, 1947, Stan and, Joe get mar- Stan and Joan get married. Joan ended up getting her first marriage annulled. The same day she married Stan, he was 24 years old, turning 25 in less than 30 days. Now he's married. Years later, when Stan's comics began to be adapted into animated TV shows, Joan would voice some of the characters. Pretty, pretty sweet. She would also later go on uh, to write a novel called The Pleasure Palace, published in 1987, still available on Amazon. Three additional unpu- unpublished novels were found after she passed away. Just days after his marriage to Bucock, uh, Stan's mother Celia died at the age of just 49, uh, December 16th, 1947. So that is a huge bummer. That kind of puts a damper on the honeymoon. Once, while Stan never spoke publicly of his mother's death, never revealing how she died is It is known that for his brother, Larry, who was still a teen, it was a deeply traumatic experience. Three years later, Timely Comics also dies. With World War II being over, America stopped being as patriotic. Their love of Captain America grew cold, as I mentioned earlier before the timeline. Captain America was canceled at issue 75 with the cover dated February 1950 and Timely then turned into Atlas Comics and focused on different types of comics. They began publishing horror, westerns, crime, romance, medieval times, biblical stories, sports stories even a comic about models and career women. Also in 1950, on August 29th, Stan and Bukak have their first child, a baby named Joan Celia, who later took the nickname JC. Joan Celia would later become an artist for Marvel Comics, dabble in acting, and then help manage her parents' finances. She never married, dedicated her life to caring for her parents and the family business. 1953, Atlas tried to bring back their superhero comics. They brought back the Human Torch and Submariner, also Captain America, drawn now by John Remita Sr. and written by now 30-year-old family man Stan Lee. During this time, Stan was also writing a syndicated newspaper strip called My Friend Irma, which was drawn by his friend and colleague Dane, or I'm sorry, Dane, I mispronounced my own name. What the fuck? Why does he Dane there? Dan, Dan DeCarlos. The strip was based on the radio show with the same name, starring Marie Wilson. Dude was always busy. Misfortune hit the Lee family in the summer of 1953. Stan and Joan lost their second daughter, Jan, who died just a few days after her birth in 1953 of an undisclosed ailment. 
ailment. Uh, fucking brutal, man. Just a few days uh, separating so much joy and so much pain. Fall of 1953 was a devastating time for the young Lee family. Stan and Joan would never try to have another child. In 1957, Atlas nearly goes under thanks to dwindling sales. They changed their name to Marvel, bring back Jack Kirby in 1958, and slowly but surely build themselves into a superhero factory powerhouse. Zip, zap, kerplow! In the late 1950s, Marvel competitor DC Comics revives their superhero genre with The Flash. They have some success there. This prompts them to come out with the Justice League of America in early 1960. Original Justice League of America characters were Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, The Flash, Aquaman, and Martian Manhunter. To compete, Marvin publisher Martin Goodman, Marvel publisher Martin Goodman, uh, Goodman is still running shit, uh, assigned Stan with the task of coming up with some new superheroes. At this stage of his career, Stan has grown increasingly frustrated writing the Western romance comics Atlas have been pumping out, and he's psyched to get back into superheroes. When he's told to come up with these new superheroes, it was his wife, Joan, who suggests that he write what he wanted to and not what was expected of him. The DC characters had all had, all had impeccable morals. They did the right thing every time, all the time, and that did not appeal to Stan. He took his wife's advice, created superhero characters with everyday human flaws, the kind that aren't necessarily considered good qualities in a person. You know, they could be angry, impulsive, obnoxious, arrogant. Stan made his characters as human-like as possible while still allowing them to have superpowers. And he, along with his illustrating creative partner, Jack Kirby, revolutionized the comic genre. Jack Kirby did the art that accompanied Stan's stories during this important period. Excuse me. And their first true creation together was the Fantastic Four, a group of scientists who got their superpowers after they were exposed to a cosmic ray while they were on a mission in outer space. The Fantastic Four appeared in Marvel Comics Fantastic Four number one. A new breed of superheroes was born, people who were just like the readers. You know, except for having larger-than-life superpowers. The Fantastic Four became popular almost immediately upon its November 6, 1961 release. The first issue of that comic has been sold for as much as $300,000 recently. The Fantastic Four characters consisted of Mr. Fantastic, Reed Richards. He'd stretch himself into different shapes due to his elastic body. Plus, Invisible Girl Sue Storm, who later would be called Invisible Woman. The highly flammable Human Torch, Johnny Storm. The Thing, Ben Grimm, who had rocks for skin which I'm guessing was a huge pain in the ass other than when he was fighting. Uh, the immediate popularity of the Fantastic Four gave Lee and Kirby a new creative license that they took full advantage of to create some of the most famous characters in human history. Hail Nimrod! May 1962, The Incredible Hulk number one appears, featuring a monstrous adaptation of Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde story. About this time in May of 62, Lee and Kirby also develop a bug-like superhero that would become a titan in the industry. Right To this day, it's reported that the origin of the web slinger came when Stan saw a fly crawling on the wall, thought of an insect superhero. He went down the list. Fly man, nah, that's not dramatic. Mosquito man, nah, no. Lice man, that's not good. Cockroach dude, fuck. He kept going until he got to Spider-Man. Uh, before getting to Spider-Man, he almost did settle on two other title possibilities. One was Ombre Asino Ant-Man and another was Roanoke Recluse Spider-Man. Uh, Ombre Asino Ant-Man would have had the power to send a whole nest of ants out of his body, and then all those ants would eat the heads off Ombre Asino Man's enemies. But Stan's publisher, Goodman, thought that readers would be uh, a little bit concerned about where the ants were coming from, because uh, early Jack Kirby illustrations made it seem like the, the killer assassin ant army were kind of coming straight out of his butt. And he also felt like that eating the heads of enemies was, was still a bit too graphic for 1962 readers. Uh, Roanoke Recluse Spider-Man was a lot like Spider-Man, except that instead of wrapping up guys with a, with a web— uh, he would open enemies' eyelids and he would send in little spiders out of his fingertips 
And then those spiders would crawl around into people's brains and drive them insane. Uh, he could also send them like into their ears. Uh, you know, you send them like on the back of their neck. Like, you know, like a lot of times, like right now, if you're listening, if you feel something tingling, you're like, oh, that might be a spider. I mean, and it probably is. Like he would do things like that. And be careful because there's a lot of those spiders are poisonous that you don't know about. And there's, there could be one crawling on you. Uh, Goodman also thought, uh, you know, the spider stuff with in the ears and in the eyes and, you know, probably crawling on your back right now was a bit much for 62 readers. So uh, he, he, you know, he canceled that. And of course, those last two superheroes were never actually considered because Ombria Sinoans and Roanoke Recluse Spiders uh, are only real here in the Suckverse. Zap, pow, kerwam, splat, plop. Uh, for real now, Stanley loved the name Spider-Man. He ran into the publisher's office, told Goodman about his great idea, and Goodman didn't like it, but let him publish it anyway. Illustrator Steve Ditko, not Jack Kirby, the man who would also co-create Doctor Strange with Stanley, would co-create Spider-Man. Spider-Man would first appear in the anthology comic book Amazing Fantasy number 15, August of 62. Spider-Man quickly became one of Marvel's best-selling comics that month. Stan later joked that after the initial sales reports came in, Goodman came into his office and said, Stan, Stan, do you remember that guy Spider-Man we both love so much? Showbiz. That's how they do it in Hollywood or New York. Also in August of 1962, another Lee and Kirby creation, Thor, the Norse god of thunder, founding member of the Avengers, appeared in Journey into Mystery, number 83. What a great month for comics, or great year. Um, or yeah, yeah, great month and great year. Thor was also co-created by Stan's now 30-year-old baby bro, Larry, Lair Bear. Stan credited as the editor, plotter, Kirby did the illustrations, Lair Bear wrote the story. March of 1963, Stan, Jack, Lair Bear, team up again to create Iron Man along with Marvel penciler Don Heck. Oh my heck, it's Don. It's Don Heck, you guys. Gosh dang. Iron Man first appearing in Tales of Suspense, number 39. The X-Men would also be born in September of 63, another Jack Kirby, Stan Lee collab. The X-Men were uh, originally called the Mutants, but Goodman told Stan that readers wouldn't buy something with that name because no one knew what a mutant was. While there was no Wolverine, Wolverine, in the initial series, he'd come along in 1974, not created by Lee and Kirby, but instead by Roy Thomas, Len Wein, and John Romita Sr. Popular characters like Professor, Professor X, Cyclops, uh, Jean Grey, Magneto, the Beast made their debut uh, here. Apparently the origin of the name X-Men just meant extra powers. Sweet. Uh, holy shit, in just 1962 and 1963, these guys pumped out the Hulk, Iron Man, Spider-Man, mostly X-Men. How crazy is that? So these characters that for my whole life, there have been countless cartoons done about them, TV shows, action figures, movies, comic books. Their, their likenesses put on everything from lunchboxes to bicycles to bedsheets to Halloween costumes to underoos. These incredibly recognizable characters were just some shit. A few guys in an office in New York City were just, you know, bullshitting about six six decades ago. It's great. It's amazing what these things can turn into. I mean, do you ever think about that? Like every story you've ever heard, every single one was originally just a thought in some meat sack's head. Like at one point in history, somebody wrote that down for the very first time. No matter how famous it is now, you know, and now it's just something we all know about. I think that's so incredible. You know, we use stories to define our lives, our, our cultures. A song reminds us of a wedding or a friendship, a book. Time travels us back to when we first read it. We bond over shared interests in TV shows, books, movies, comic books, whatever. And all these things started off in one meat sack's mind. I love that so much. I've always loved the incredible world-building, uplifting power, right? The, the power to bring people together of the human imagination. Stanley had one of the best imaginations of all time. What a beautiful thing. Nerd boner, so hard. Hulk smash hard. Boom, zap, pow. Come, come, come! I don't know. 
Starting in 1965, Stan changed the way a comic writer interacted with their fan base when he wrote a monthly column for Marvel's Bull, Bullpen Bulletins, a news and information page that appeared in most regular, regular monthly Marvel comic books from 1965 to 1972. Always had previews of upcoming comics and profiles about Marvel staff writers and artists. Stan's column was called Stan's Soapbox, where he addressed the readers almost as if they were uh, on a first-name basis. Stan never talked down to his audience. The fact that he made an effort to communicate was a big deal, innovative. At the time, DC was starting to become uh, considered as old, out of touch, run by a stodgy, pretentious grown-ups. Stan made shit cool and casual. He, sp- he spoke to the kids. He was, he, was a, he was a cool, casual motherfucker. He talked about the Marvel bullpen, the in-house staff of Marvel artists and producers. He always spoke highly of the staff, gave them sweet nicknames like Jack King Kirby, Stan the Man Lee. I had no idea he did that, or maybe I just forgot. And then I ended up trying to do something, you know, similar on a small scale, you know, Reverend Dr. Joe, Queen of the Suck, Script Keeper, High Priestess, Suck Master. Nicknames are so fun. Stan created a fictional staffer to make fun of and ridicule Irving Forbush, who also made it into a few comics. It was during the writing of these columns that Stan began using Excelsior, which is Latin for ever upward, still higher. And the terms Nuff Said, True Believer, his little columns, right? Got some clubhouse language going. Hail Nimrod. He used to end his column with phrases like face front. And again, enough said, but other comics could easily rip that off without having to explain themselves. So Stan, you know, got the idea to say something that he was positive that the competition probably wouldn't know what it even meant. And it would definitely be considered his because no one else was saying it. And that's when he started using Excelsior, which was also the New York State motto since, since uh, 1778. Okay, now let's get back to Spider-Man, Lee's most famous creation, which is spelled with a hyphen. If you're going to be proper, put the hyphen between Spider-Man any other spelling, not okay. As far as Stan was concerned, he would say, ooh, that gets me angry. It's got to have a hyphen because that's the way I stated it. And also, it makes it look very different from Superman, which doesn't have a hyphen. It should be a capital S and a capital M. If I don't see it done that way, it arouses my ire. So if you don't want my ire to be aroused, you'd better write it correctly. And another one that bothers me too is the word comic book. People always write it as if it's two separate words. But to me, if it's two separate words then it means a funny book, a comic book. If you write it as one word, which is the way I do it, then it's a generic term meaning a comic book. So I feel everybody ought to write comic book as if it's one word because it doesn't mean funny book, you stupid fucks. And they fucking punch whoever he was talking to. And he's threatening to kill their family. No, I didn't do that. But I do like how he, uh, how he takes this stuff so seriously, man. Details matter. Also, I made fun of Spider-Man in my stand-up before. And in full admission, I don't really care for Spider-Man. He's a superhero. He's my least favorite famous superhero. But that being said, I respect how important he was to Stan Lee, how important he is to the genre, all the creativity that went into making him. And I know I'm in the minority when I don't give a shit about him. A lot of meat sacks love Peter Parker. Spider-Man would go in and sell hundreds of millions of copies, gross billions of dollars in the box office as a solo act and as part of the Avengers. Stan has said he's glad he didn't know Spider-Man was going to be so popular. He said, it's so indescribably thrilling to realize that so many people really care about a character I dreamed up and wrote so many years ago. Although it's probably lucky I didn't know how big Spidey would become in later years, because if I suspected that, I'd have been too nervous to write the stories, worrying if they're good enough for posterity to judge. I relate to this on a very comparatively small level, like very small. As more fans have begun to come out to uh, stand-up shows because of this podcast, I I have found myself getting in my head in moments, second-guessing new material, right? And then I shake it off because I know it's not good for creativity, but it's just different creating something that you know uh, you know, like in my case, that, that a couple hundred thousand people are going to hear perhaps more than it, than it is when you're creating stuff early on that you don't know if anybody will ever give a fuck about. 
I can't imagine the pressure of creating something if you knew that like billions would know about it and, and have opinion on uh, opinions on. And now, and now I feel a little bad for saying I don't care about Spider-Man, but whatever. Uh, during an interview with Larry King back in 2000, Stan talked about the audience he did have in mind when he created his characters. He said, I don't have an audience in mind. I write for myself. I write stories that I think I would like to read. I try to write them clearly enough that a youngster can understand and appreciate it. Love this. Again, I relate on a teeny tiny level. I think about this with stand-up early on. I imagine myself and also my old college buddies being the audience I would write for. And then as time went on, I decided to write just for myself because I lost touch with most of my old buddies, at least in the sense of spending a lot of time with them. And so I shifted the audience to only me. And uh, from that point on, you know, I'd write only what I thought was funny to hear. Because to me, that's the only thing that makes sense. You know, if you try to write for somebody else, you have this imaginary audience in mind, then you can't have a consistent voice. And you'll never care about it as much as you would if you just wrote it for yourself, for your own pleasure. Uh, way back in 2005, I did once write for a different audience instead of myself. And, I, and I, I've never felt so creatively dirty before or since. Uh, I had some gigs opening up for Larry the Cable Guy, who was at the height of his popularity. We had the same manager. That's how I got the gig. And I did okay the first time I worked with him in Pullman, Washington, Washington State University. We got along backstage. He's a super nice guy. Very nice guy. And he gave me a bunch of dates and he really liked me. And his audience did not like me. And it is not fun to bomb in front of 8,000 people night after night after night. So one day I sat down before some upcoming gigs with him and I wrote some jokes that I didn't give a shit about. I didn't even like him at all, but I thought his audience would like him. I told them the next time I opened up for him and they crushed and I've never felt more disgusted with myself creatively. It was so inauthentic. And I made a deal with myself that when it came to stand up, I'd only do what I liked from that point forward. And if the audience didn't uh, like what I liked anymore, well, then I'd fucking quit. And if they did like it, then I'd be able to keep it going, you know, for a long, long time. But one, best creative decision I ever made. And it, it's cool just for me to hear that Stan Lee had that same perspective. Uh, you know, why stay in the creative arts if, if, if you're not going to actually be creative? All right, but, but enough about myself. Let's talk about Stan Lee. Sorry, I get all inspired about this guy's life. 1996 interview with the Chicago Tribune. Stan would be asked what his favorite character that he created was. And he said, I like Spider-Man because he's become the most famous. He's the one who's most like me. Nothing ever turns out 100% okay. He's got a lot of problems. He does things wrong. I can relate to that. And I like Silver Surfer because he's the most philosophical, always philosophizing about the human race and the human condition and why people are the way they are, why they don't appreciate this wonderful planet they live on. Hail fucking Nimrod, Stan, exactly. He has a nice moral tone to him. Uh, I feel like he was talking about the idiots of the internet before the idiots of the internet existed right there. Uh, okay, enough about Spider-Man for now. 1966, excuse me, 1966, Lee and Kirby created the Black Panther comic series. Black Panther, the first superhero of African descent in mainstream American comics, having debuted years before uh, early black superheroes, such as uh, the Falcon in 1969, Luke Cage in 72, Blade in 73, uh, or DC Comics' John Stewart in the role of Green Lantern, Green Lantern in 1971. Love him even, love him even more. February 26, 1968, Stan's father, Jack, passes away at the age of 82. Uh, he dies in a motorcycle racing accident. Jack had taken up motorcycle racing a few years before against the advice of his family. And uh, I cannot continue to sell this lie. I just wanted you to think, just for a quick moment, why the fuck was an 82-year-old man racing a motorcycle? But he did die. He died from being 82 years old. And Stan would say, an unexpected phone call from my brother, Larry, told us in a voice trembling with sorrow that my father who had never remarried and had been living in Manhattan all these years, had died unexpectedly. 1970, Stan's creative powers led him back to the government. Because of the popularity of his comic books, the U.S. government came to Stan and his team. 
1970, Nixon's administration, uh, the U.S. Department of Health, Education, Welfare, asked Marvel Comics and Stan to do a story about drug abuse in order to teach kids, let them know the drugs are bad, which is not a bad idea. Good way to reach the kids. Uh, Stan agreed to do the stories and wrote The Amazing Spider-Man, issues 96 through 98. This three-episode arc is called Green Goblin Reborn. Uh, first, in episode 96, Spider-Man sees a man dancing on the rooftop and then falls, and Spidey saves him, only to realize the guy's wasted on drugs. And then Spidey says, I would rather face a hundred supervillains than throw my life away on hard drugs, because it is a battle you cannot win. Then in the next book, 97, Peter Parker finds out that his friend Harry, Green Goblin's son, is popping pills because Mary Jane doesn't like him. Harry ends up getting deeper into drugs. Eventually, Peter finds him overdosed, takes him to the hospital. Finally, in The Great Conclusion, episode 98, Spidey lures the Green Goblin to the hospital to see how sick his son is from his OD. And the Goblin sees Harry sucking some guy's dick in the alley behind the ER to get enough money for a quick fix. And President Nixon was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, Mr. Lee, this is uh, the exact message that I would like to give to the American youth, but I wish you would have conveyed it differently. I thought the extreme close-up where you could actually see the cum mixed in with Harry's tears was especially unnecessary. Uh, Of course, that did not happen. The goblin saw his son all messed up from his OD, and he fainted, and he was vanquished. Uh, For this anti-drug Spider-Man trilogy, Marvel had to remove the comics code seal of approval because of all the drug stuff. Didn't, Didn't pass the code. That code introduced, we talked about before, because of McCarthyism. Even without the seal of approval, the comics went on, uh, to, or the comics, you know, those issues went on to be a big hit. They were actually so well-received that their argument for denying the seal was deemed counterproductive and the comics code was revised. In true competitive fashion, DC Comics also then made one of their characters, Speedy from the Green Lantern, a heroin addict. Uh, let's talk about the comics code, or comics code authority, CCA, uh, a little bit now. Formed in 1954 by Comics Magazine Associate of America as an alternative, as I said earlier, to government regulation. Right, I mentioned earlier they had some pretty absurd standards, like the no werewolves rule. Uh, let's take some time now to really go into this a little bit more in depth. There are 19 tenets, and they are fucking hilarious. Uh, first, crime shall never be presented in such a way as to create sympathy for the criminal, to promote distrust or the forces of law and justice, or to inspire others with a desire to imitate criminals. It's number one. No complex characters, guys. Bad guys. Super bad. Pure evil. That's why they commit crimes because they're Satan's minions hell-bent on destruction and not complex people committing crimes for a variety of, you know, socioeconomic reasons. Number two, if crime is depicted, it shall be a sordid and unpleasant activity. Okay. Number three, police, judges, government officials, and respected institutions shall never be presented in such a way as to create disrespect for established authority. Okay. A little bit scary. Feels like a rule you'd read in North Korea or Soviet Union, not in the United States. Uh, Number four, criminals shall be presented so as to be rendered glamorous. Oh, criminals shall not be presented so as to be rendered glamorous or to occupy a position which creates a desire for emulation. All right, fine. Number five, in every instance, good shall triumph over evil and the criminal punished for his misdeeds. I read that one as make every story formulaic and predictable and above all, boring. Number six, scenes of excessive violence shall be prohibited. Scenes of brutal torture, excessive and unnecessary knife and gunplay, physical agony, and gory and gruesome crime shall be eliminated. Well, we have clearly strayed quite a bit from this rule recently. Glad there isn't a podcast equivalent to this rule. The Albert Fish suck would have never happened. Peanut butter. No comic magazine shall use the words horror or terror in its title. 
Uh, we must think of the children, right? God forbid they read the word horror to title. They might lose their minds. Uh, number eight, all scenes of horror, excessive bloodshed, gory or gruesome crimes, depravity, lust, sadism, masochism shall not be permitted. Man, my favorite comic of all time, favorite graphic novel, Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon's Preacher, uh, has a lot of everything mentioned in rule number eight. Number nine, all lurid, unsavory, gruesome illustrations shall be eliminated. That one sounds almost like a book party to me. Oh, oh my heck. Number 10, inclusion of stories dealing with evil shall be used or shall be published only where there is intent to illustrate a moral issue. And in no case shall the evil be presented alluringly, nor so as to injure the sensibilities of the reader. And you really don't have much faith in your parenting abilities. If you think a few panels in a comic book is going to unravel your kid's fucking moral world. Number 11, scenes dealing with or instruments associated with walking dead, torture, vampires, and vampirism, ghouls, cannibalism, and werewolfism are prohibited. All right, yeah, we covered that one. Number 12, profanity, obscenity, smut, vulgarity, or words or symbols which have acquired undesirable meanings are forbidden. Gasting! With a flip, ding-dongs, mother, father! Number 13, nudity in any form is prohibited, as is indecent or undue exposure. Thank God, they no longer follow that one. Some of these artists can draw a very sexy lady, as can some of you. Uh, I have a very, uh, very sacred, uh, sexy, excuse me, naked Lucifina illustration I'm looking at right now in the suck touch. Hey, Lucifina. Uh, susceptible and salacious illustration or suggestive posture is unacceptable. What? Superheroes can't even stand in a sexy way? And this code was still around in the 70s? Feel like, feel like something that was written around the time of the Salem witch trials. Number 15, females shall be drawn realistically without exaggeration of any physical qualities. No big tatas. Got it. Number 16, illicit sex relations are neither to be hinted at nor portrayed. Rape scenes as well as sexual abnormalities are unacceptable. And by sexual abnormalities, uh, yes, these Puritan psychos meant homosexuals. Nimrod not pleased with them. Number 17, seduction and rape shall never be shown or suggested. Okay, I, I, I get, you know, how rape could... You know, uh, maybe should grant a book some kind of parental advisory sticker, but seduction, come on. Lucifina hates this code. Number 18, sex perversion or any, or any inference to same is strictly forbidden. We get it. You guys fucking hate sex. All right, you'll have these characters beat the shit out of each other. Pow, kaboom, zap. They'll have them kill each other. That's all well and good for America's youth, but God forbid they fuck or make sweet, sweet love with their super hard hero cocks. And super firm, gravity-resistant superhero boobs. Uh, God forbid some kid, you know, jerk off or diddle themselves after reading one of these comics. No, no, better to have them get in a fight, just like they're heroes. Number 19, nudity with meretricious purpose and salacious posture shall not be permitted in the advertising of any product. Clothed figures shall never be presented in such a way as to be offensive or contrary to good taste or morals. Oh, for fuck's sake. People who came up with that code, at least the people in the comic book industry, were worried about offending if they didn't follow that code were some seriously sexually repressed motherfuckers. So in a nutshell, no sexy, no complicated comics. Uh, you know, we're supposed to be drawn, supposed to be written. So saith the puritanical psychos. Wonder what they would have thought of Deadpool. Uh, this code was revised a number of times during 1971, initially on January 28th, to allow for, among other things, that sometimes a sympathetic depiction of criminal behavior, corruption among public officials, as long as it is it is portrayed as exceptional and the culprit is punished, as well as permitting some criminal activities to kill law enforcement officers and the suggestion but not portrayal of seduction. Now that's allowed. Stories get a little better, more realistic. 
Stan stopped writing the Amazon, uh, the Amazing Spider-Man full-time after issue 100 in September of 1971, coming back for only a handful of issues after that. By the end of 1972, almost 50-year-old Stan had completely stopped writing monthly comics so he could focus on his role as publisher for Marvel. The last Spider-Man issue he wrote was 110 in July 72. His last Fantastic Four was 125 in August of 72. 1974, Spider-Man began appearing in live-action form on the show The Electric Company in a recurring skit called Spidey Super Stories. Season four, show 391, Spidey is TV famous. By 1975, 52-year-old Stan is the public face of all things Marvel. He attended Comic-Con, similar events all around the country, as well as conducted lectures at colleges and did countless panel discussions. And by the way, the first San Diego Comic-Con held in 1970. I did not think it was that old. Learning that may have led me to Google 1970s cosplay, which may have caused me to look at some nude cosplay pictures for, you know, a lot longer than I intended for research. 1977, Spider-Man was made into a TV movie, released theatrically abroad, served as the pilot for the 1978 television series, The Amazing Spider-Man, ran from 77 to 79. Foray into, uh, you know, film has begun. Also in 77, Stan started the, uh, the Spider-Man comic for King Features, the company that puts out all the comic strips to newspapers around the country. The last Spider-Man comic strip ran March 23rd, 2019. Spidey back in the newspapers. Zap, kaboim, hoingy boingy, oof to oof to boom pow. Lastly, 1977, Stan's final collaboration with Jack Kirby was The Silver Surfer, the ultimate cosmic experience. Published in 78, considered Marvel's first graphic novel, and I impulse ordered it because of this research. Hope I have time to read it soon. If you don't know the difference between a graphic novel and a comic, it's very simple. Uh, graphic novels are much longer, tend to be much more complex. While a comic book will tell a story over many issues, graphic novels have compiled those storylines into one, you know, or, or, or maybe a few books, but into larger books. And that's it. I thought there'd be more to it. Uh, basically, a graphic novel is just a bunch of comics squished into a book. 1981, Stan was given the role to develop Marvel's TV and movie properties, moved his family out to L.A. from New York, where he quickly discovered the job to be a little more technical uh, than he felt he could handle. He eventually stepped down from the position to remain closer to the creative process. And then he stayed in California because, you know, weather's better. Stan was the publisher for Marvel from 1972 and he still he stepped away in 1996. And then he would still receive a yearly salary after that of $1 million a year as chairman emeritus. Quite the tribute to the man's contribution to the company. Part of his agreement with Marvel after he stepped down was that he would also be allowed to compete against them. And he would, dude, kept on creating. Can't turn a creative switch on that powerful of a mind off. You can't, you know, shut it down. 1989, excuse me, 1998, 75-year-old Stan, along with a few business partners, including a super questionable dude named Peter Paul Lee, founds the Stan Lee Media Company. Lee's formal title is chairman. Paul has amassed an impressive roster of Hollywood names he was associated with through the American Spirit Foundation, which he ran. It looked legit enough to give him enough credibility to take advantage of a living legend. The ASF had been established by actor Jimmy Stewart to improve public education with Paul in charge. It had given annual uh, Spirit of America awards to figures such as Ronald Reagan, Bob Hope, Stan Lee. Paul had enlisted Lee to become the ASF's chairman and to head up its Entertainers for Education Committee. Paul would introduce him to figures such as Muhammad Ali, Bill and Hillary Clinton, Tony Curtis. Paul proposed to Lee the idea of starting an intellectual property development company which would focus on the internet, then a magnet for investment money. Paul, unbeknownst to Lee, had a very checkered past, including having been incarcerated for a scheme involving attempting to defraud the Cuban government out of more than $8 million. He claimed to Lee this had been a frame job on him and he was part of a U.S. government secret plot to overthrow Castro. 
Lee chose to take Paul's explanations at face value, deciding to cast his lot with this guy whom his uh, direct experience had been positive. More or less sidelined by Marvel, though still his public face, Lee at 75 remained energetic, ambitious. Stan Lee Media was Stan's chance to be back in the saddle. He was not interested in retiring, considered himself very much a producer of current material. Stanley Media was his outlet. No one would question his work ultimately, but him. It was a dream job, included a creative staff of 150 people. And again, like so much of today's suck, I fucking love this so much. 75 years old, wealthy, accomplished, beloved. I think I said beloved earlier. I like, I like both versions of that word. Uh, and he just wants to tell more stories. He doesn't want to be some fucking nostalgia act. Like some old band still singing the same shit they wrote 40 years ago and nothing you know, but those songs. No, he wants to tell new tales. I hope I'm still, uh, you know, alive and creating at 75. It's inspiring. According to colleagues, that's kind of a weird way to phrase that. Like, I hope I'm still alive at 75. Well, I hope I make it to 75. You know, if, I, if I'm if i at 75, I am alive. Uh, when asked during the Stan Lee media period to be an old, to be on an old timers panel at the San Diego Comic-Con, Comic-Con, Lee responded, I will do any panel you want me on as long as it's about current material. I will not do anything about history no matter what. I'm an active current producer of material. That's all I want to talk about. Fucking hail Nimrod. Stanley Media it was a very hands-on company for Lee, but it wouldn't last long. One insider came to believe that aside from Stan, the other executives didn't really care much about the new properties the company was coming up with. Instead, in their minds, the purpose of the company was to be sold, to make itself look so damn successful that Yahoo or Amazon or Sony or somebody would just acquire it for a huge sum of money. Damn suits. Bunch of soulless suits surrounding Lee. Just in it for the money. What really hurt the company wasn't a lack of creative passion by these suits, though. It was uh, Peter Paul. The con man started committing various types of securities fraud with the now publicly traded company. The fraud was discovered by the authorities, and Paul, after fleeing to Brazil, ended up in prison in the U.S. In 2001, after the collapse of Stanley Media, Stan decided to do what very few 78-year-olds decided to do, start another company. With lessons learned from Stanley Media, Lee, along with his longtime lawyer, Arthur Lieberman, as well as colleague uh, Gil Champion, Stan forms a new intellectual property farm, which he calls POW, for purveyors of wonder entertainment. Uh, POW is designed to be the primary outlet through which Lee's ideas, often featuring Lee himself in some way, will be conveyed to the public and pitched to other media companies. And it's, it's been incredibly successful. Again, he started this at 78 years old. The, the, the concepts they made were like uh, Stripperella, Stan Lee's Superhero Christmas, Lightspeed, Who Wants to Be a Superhero, Mosaic, The Condor, Ultimo, Time Jumper, Hero Man, Stanley's Line, Stanley's Superhuman, Chakra, Stanley's Verticus, Stanley's Superhero Pack, The Zodiac Legacy, Stanley's Command, The Unknowns, Lucky Man, Stanley's Cosmic Crusaders, God Woke, Workforce, The Reflection, and still more projects coming out. Pow was bought by a Chinese company based in Hong Kong. Cam Singh International Holding in 2017, uh, you know, and still pushes on, st still creating more content. 2002, Lee took on yet another project, writing his memoir entitled Excelsior with co-author George Mayer. And, uh, and then there were the cameos. Lee would keep busy for another decade and a half into his mid-90s. He would actually become more popular than ever in his 90s. How cool is that? Big part of that would come uh, from ongoing cameos and mainly Marvel movies. His first cameo actually had come back way back in uh, 1989 as a juror in the TV movie, The Trial of the Incredible Hulk. The next one was supposed to be the 1990, 1998 film Blade, but his uh, his little cameo was left on the cutting room floor. His next cameo, one that started a, a long-running gag of tons of cameos, was when he played a hot dog vendor in 2000's X-Men, 
From then on, he would find his way into nearly every Marvel film. It's much easier to count the Marvel films that Lee did not have a cameo in. These include an early Captain America movie, uh, 1989, a B-movie version of the Fantastic Four in the 90s, Howard the Duck, yep, Howard the Duck, Marvel creation, Elektra, the Punisher movies, the Blade movies, Ghost Rider, a few X-Men titles. Stan had cameos in 2002's Spider-Man, 2003's Daredevil, 2003's Hulk, Spider-Man 2 and 04, the Fantastic Four and 05. X-Men The Last Stand in 2006, Fantastic Four Rise the Silver Surfer in 06, Spider-Man 3 in 2007, on and on and on. Posthumously appeared thanks to pre-recording his cameos in two films in 2018, three more in 2019. Dude was also a philanthropist. Stan Lee Foundation was founded in 2010. Uh, it's a nonprofit organization that seeks to provide access to literacy, education, and the arts throughout the nation. Still working in 2012 at the age of 89, Stan launched a YouTube channel called World of Heroes. I've watched some of the videos and they're fucking great. His health declined in 2012. He had a pacemaker put in a few months before his 90th birthday. In a statement to the public, he just jokingly said he did it in an effort to be more like fellow Avenger Tony Stark, the Iron Man. Also this year, Stan admitted that his producer titles in the big Marvel movies were honorary. He said, I hate to admit this, but I do not share in the movie's profits. I just share in the interviews, the glamour. And the people saying, wow, I love that movie, Stan, but I'm not a participant in the profits. Seems crazy to me. But I guess because he was an employee of Marvel's and not the owner, while all his characters were his creations artistically, they were not his creations legally. So, you know, a little lesson there, I guess, to own your shit when you can, artists. I know you can't always do that, but man, try your best to. Beginning in 2005, Stan released the first of a trilogy of books called Zodiac. Of course he did. Why slow down? He's only 92. Second in the series came out in 2016 and the third in 2017. The description of the book on Amazon reads, when 12 magical superpowers are unleashed on the world, a Chinese-American teenager named Steven will be thrown into the middle of an epic global chase. He'll have to master strange powers, outrun superpowered mercenaries, unlock the mysteries of the Zodiac. And the ratings on these books are good. 2015, one recent out, or our, excuse me, recent outrage culture sunk its illogical witch hunt claws into Lee. Gawker published some leaked emails from Sony Pictures that revealed a strict licensing agreement between the movie studio and Marvel Comics in regards to Spider-Man. The article was titled, Spider-Man Can't Be Gay or Black. Among several things, it does indeed say that Spidey, Peter Parker, can't be gay. He must be a white male and he doesn't drink or do drugs. Outrageous, right? Sounds terrible? Well, it doesn't sound terrible to me when Stan explains it. Stan had this to say. I wouldn't mind if Peter Parker had originally been black a Latino, an Indian, or anything else, that he stay that way. But we originally made him white. I don't see any reason to change that. On the issue of Spider-Man not being allowed to be gay, Lee said, I think the world has a place for gay superheroes, certainly. But again, I don't see any reason to change the sexual proclivities of a character once they've already been established. I have no problem with creating new homosexual superheroes. And, and this is what he gets in trouble for. Stan's argument is essentially just if the character's been around for over 50 fucking years, Peter Parker is Peter Parker, and I don't disagree with him on that. He went on to say, it has nothing to do with being anti-gay or anti-black or anti-Latino or anything like that. Latino characters should stay Latino. The Black Panther should certainly, should certainly not be Swiss. I just see no reason to change that which has already been established when it's so easy to add new characters. I say, create new characters the way you want to, hell, I'll do it myself. Fucking outrage culture. Spider-Man was his baby. He thought him up and guided him for decades. I think it's his, you know, right to want uh, him to remain as he created him. 
You know, what if this podcast lasts for decades and gets more popular and the mythologies of my silly characters deepen and someone then eventually tells me, hey, Bojangles is now a chihuahua, not a pit bull. I'd be like, no, no, that's not who the fuck he is. You want a chihuahua? Well, fine. Then we come up with a new chihuahua character, but we don't completely change an existing character. Now, all that being said, Spider-Man has been reimagined as Mike Morales, a young Afro-Latino dude in a run of Spider-Man comics and in the movie Into the Spider-Verse, which I saw with my son, Kyler, and it's great. I think they did a great job. But that being said, I still think it was okay for Stanley to wish that his creation was left alone because there's, again, plenty of room for other characters. July 6, 2017 in Los Angeles, Stan's longtime wife, Joan Bucock. Uh, Joan Bucock Lee dies from stroke-related complications, 95. Stan, her husband of almost 70 years, and their daughter, Joan, present as she died. How fucking beautiful is that? that they were together for almost 70 years and that he got to be with her when she died. And I can't imagine the pain one would feel when you lose a partner of seven decades. And I'm going to move on because thinking about that would, might make me emotional. Okay. In the months after Joan's death, numerous lawsuits filed by Lee also filed a, a, a against him. How shitty. Large sums of money are reported missing from various accounts of Lee's. Some of the result of checks he had no memory of signing. Taking advantage of the elderly. In my mind, that puts you morally on par with the pedophile. Taking advantage of kids, right? Playing, preying on the vulnerable like a fucking human vulture. Numerous parties claimed to legally represent Lee in his final days. The poor dude was recorded in videos posted on social media purporting to clear the air about who truly represented him and his interests. And then in successive videos would con- contradict previous you know, ones. You know, he's, he's slipping a bit. There were also sexual harassment allegations from nurses employed for his home care in his final months. Among the claims was that he walked around naked and demanded oral sex. Uh, really? Did he? Did he, did he really do that? Or were those nurses looking to make a quick buck? And even if he did say that, was he, his, was he in his right mind, right? Would you sue a mentally handicapped person for saying that? Would you sue a paranoid schizophrenic not on their meds for saying that? I mean, what the fuck? Stan sent a cease and desist letter to the company that employed those nurses and the charges were immediately dropped. Uh-huh. There were a variety of other legal battles revolving around Lee, feeling that he was being taken advantage of in 2017, early 2018. In May of 2018, it was reported that Stan Lee was suing POW Entertainment for a billion dollars. Sue claimed he was duped into signing a document, giving away his rights and name, and that two of the people he founded the company with were, you know, trying to steal his identity. Uh, then in July of 2018, all the legal ugliness finally went away, thank God, before he died. It was reported that Stan dropped the lawsuit against POW and then released a statement saying, the whole thing has been confusing to everyone including myself and the fans. But I'm now happy to be surrounded by those who want the best for me. I am thrilled to put the lawsuit behind me, get back to business with my friends and colleagues at POW, and launch the next wave of amazing characters and stories. Man, still creating, still passionate. 95. He just wants to come up with new characters. His mind was ready to go, uh, you know, back to work, but his body was not. November 12, 2018, the comic book legend died in Los Angeles from pneumonia complications, 95 years old. His body was then cremated and his ashes were given to his daughter. And that is all for this week's Time Suck Timeline. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. Okay, so I know a lot of this suck has been me, uh, you know, sucking Stan's dick. A lot of hero worshiping. Uh, there was so much more I could have done in that regard. I don't even talk about all the awards he got. Uh, I felt like it would start to read like the world's longest obituary. Uh, But let me address now the main controversy that surrounds Stan, taking credit for work that wasn't his. There have been longstanding disputes on who created what, who gets credit for what, you know, writing which comics, et cetera. 
To address this, we first need to understand the Marvel way, right? The way these collaborations went down. Stan and his coworkers were part of the Marvel way or the Marvel method, which in an attempt to pump out as many comics as humanly possible in a short amount of time, the illustrator slash artist would give, be given a vague outline, not a worked out plot with a clear story, right? It just speeds things along. So the artist would then have to decide what to show on the page, and then they would end up helping, uh, you know, to write and shape the story in that way. And sometimes, you know, they would do more actual story creation than maybe they would be given credit for later. For example, the Fantastic Four was clearly based on a comic that Jack Kirby had previously worked on called Challengers of the Unknown. You know, but then Stan claimed over and over that he was the one who thought of the Fantastic Four. Uh, coincidence, maybe, you know, Jack Kirby did think of a similar plot line and then maybe Stan, you know, independently thought of that on his own. It's possible. Stan's wife, Joan, claimed that she'd witnessed Stan come up with the Fantastic Four concept. Uh, Jack Kirby did always speak positively about his work with Stan. You know, he did leave Marvel in 1970 to go work for uh, their rival DC, but he claims he was treated even worse there and came back to Marvel in 76. So, you know, why would he come back to work with a guy who steals your ideas? That doesn't make much sense to me. Uh, in 1990, four years before he died, Jack gave a rare interview to the Comics Journal and said this about Stan's contribution to the work they did together, which is where a lot of this controversy comes from. He said, I dialogue them. If Stan Lee ever got a thing dialogued, he would get it from someone working in the office. I would write out the whole story on the back of every page. I would write the dialogue on the back or a description of what was going on. Then Stan Lee would hand them to some guy. He would write in more dialogue. In this way, Stan Lee made more pay than he did as an editor. This is the way Stan Lee became the writer. Besides collecting the editor's pay, he collected writer's pay. I'm not saying Stan Lee had a bad business head on. I do think he took advantage of whoever was working for him. Okay. All right. I mean, that's his, uh, that, that's his opinion. After uh, Kirby died in February of 94, his family fought for creator credits for years, settled out of court uh, for a sizable amount recently. So, you know, what we have here is a he said, other he said here. I mean, who's lying? Who's telling the truth? Are both sides a little bit right and a little bit wrong? No one will just ever know for sure. Uh, but I just think based on how long he kicked ass in the comic book industry, how many people he worked with, how many characters he created, listed uh, as having created 200 characters over many decades— I just can't believe he stole all of those ideas, right? There would be a lot more complaints and there, and there isn't actually a lot more complaints. It was a team effort to build these worlds and Stanley was on arguably more of these teams than anyone. And I don't think that happens unless you're a creative force to be reckoned with. And whenever there's a team collaboration, people are going to have different viewpoints about how much each person contributed. That's just human nature. So that is why Stanley is thought of, uh, you know, by some is, uh, you know, a guy who stole some some stuff, you know, by like, you know, comments like that by Jack Kirby. Most comic book fans seem to think he was an absolute hero. Flawed, yeah, maybe a little bit, but, but aren't all heroes, aren't we all? Uh, from Spider-Man to the Hulk, Iron Man to the Avengers, Lee was there for it all, man. He and his peers created thousands of characters, nurtured an industry worth billions of dollars. I hope you enjoyed this march through comic book history and the life of Stan Lee. Certainly not able to cover close to it all in one podcast. He lived a long time. He did a lot of shit. But I hope you know more about Stan and, and the beautiful lit literary genre he was a part of now than you did before you hit play. Uh, let's recap what we learned now with today's top five takeaways. Boom, zap, pow, pow bam, auga, auga. Time suck. Top five takeaways. I love all those comic book little bubble words. Uh, number one, Stan Lee helped create a massive multimedia entertainment empire. The movies and games are worth billions. The amount of comics that have been sold is mind-boggling. How cool it must have been for him to be there for basically the entire progression of that industry, right? From a brand new, often struggling medium to the most profitable genre of film in the world. Number two, 
The X-Men world films have been made over have made over six billion dollars at the box office alone. The Avengers-based universe has made over 18 billion dollars. Zap, pow, ka-ching! Number three, Stan Lee co-created 200 comic book characters, Spider-Man, the Hulk, the Fantastic Four, Ant-Man, the Avengers, Black Panther, Dr. Doom, Deathstalker, Thor, Quicksilver, even some dude named Fancy Dan, and on and on. Fancy Dan, a uh, supervillain, created in 1964 to battle Spider-Man, part of a group called the Enforcers, really good at karate, really good at judo, good at, uh, as a marksman, once made, Spider-Man's, uh, f- once made fun of Spider-Man's butt, saying that Spider-Man's butt was too big. Yeah, yeah. Now you you make a lot of characters that can't all be hits. Uh, number four, Stan served in World War II, working as one of only nine playwrights. His job was to write manuals, training films, slogans, and even some cartoons for the war effort. I think Stan for his service. Number five, new info. Comic book characters may make even more money in merchandising rights than they do at the box office. In 2013, Spider-Man alone made over $1.3 billion in global product likeness licensing revenue. The Avengers made... $325 million. Batman made $494 million. Superman made almost $300 million. Uh, Disney, who owns Marvel, overall made $41 billion in 2013 in just licensing sales. There are also video game sales, DVDs, downloads, rentals, on and on and on. All that money. And it all started with a couple of silly ideas and a lot of hard work. So work hard on your silly ideas. That's all for today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Stan Lee has been sucked. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Thanks to uh, Kerpow, Slurp, Spit. Uh, thanks to the Time Suck team. Thanks to uh, Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins. High Priest of the Suck, Harmony Camp, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley. Thanks to the Bit Elixir, Elixir app design crew. Thanks to my mush mouth. My tongue constantly slipping today. Uh, thanks to Access Apparel, now known as the Spicy Club. Big thanks to the script keeper, um, Zach Flannery. Also to comedian and book and comic book nerd, John Huck. Yes, John Huck uh, helped with the initial research. If you want to meet more time suckers, I keep, uh, you know, uh, seeing that the, uh, the Cult of the Curious private Facebook group is growing. Get in there, meet some people, make some friends, and hear more about time suck friendships all the time it shows. Uh, for even more social interaction, head over to the Time Suck Discord group. From the time or on the, you can link from the time suck app. Uh, also, links for both in the episode description. Next week, we're going to get real wackadoodle, and I like it. The Nazi search for the Holy Grail. Heinrich Himmler, head of the Nazi SS, made a secret wartime mission to an abbey in Spain in search of what he believed was the Aryan Holy Grail. Uh, Himmler visited the famous Montresat Abbey near Barcelona, where he thought he would find the Grail, which Jesus Christ was said to have used to consecrate the last consecrate the Last Supper. Himmler thought if he could lay claim to this Holy Grail, it would help Germany win the war, give him supernatural powers. He could be like a weird Stan Lee superpower or super uh, villain. The Nazis were so crazy. They also, uh, you know, they thought that uh, instead of being the king of the Jews, that Jesus Christ was actually descended from Aryan stock. They convinced themselves that somehow that was possible. And they really thought that if they could find these, you know, supposed magical relics, they could control the world. We're going to dig into their quest which sounds like a crazy graphic novel plot next week on Time Shock. For the rest of this week's episode, we're going to dive into the mind of the cult of the curious in today's Time Sucker Updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker Updates. First update coming in from a fantastic sucker, Travis Matrio... Matrio... Gosh dang it, I don't fucking know. Matrius? Matrius. 
He had beef, he has beef with Nimrod and it gives me a chance to clear some stuff up. And, and Travis, if you're listening, I, I do see you, you sent a follow-up email, which I didn't have a chance to really uh, go over. It was rushing to get this in there about feeling bad about this email. You shouldn't feel bad about this email. I, I thought it was great, which is why I'm reading it. Travis wrote, dear master of the suck, while I love you and your comedy, but Spider-Man is awesome. <laughs> uh, fuck Nimrod. My father committed suicide when I was a month old to say he and countless others are Nimrod's butthole because they had one bad day is not only an insult, but a slap in the face of those who remain. Was my father a good person? Likely no. Does that mean they, he should be stuck in Nimrod's taint at best? No. I love my father. And I myself have contemplated hanging myself when things get dark. If Nimrod punishes those who commit suicide, he is no better than the Christian God. My father may not have been good, but suicide is no reason for him to be punished. If you ignore this and have one of your assistants answer, then hi. I know this likely won't get read, but one other person reading this makes me feel better. Will I stop listening? No. Time suck helps pull me out of my darkness. But if I can get Dan to spend even one second saying maybe suicide isn't so evil, then so be it. I don't think he feels it's evil, but maybe he's uninformed about it. I think he's a good person, but has misspoke for a while on suicide. Sorry this was so long, but I'm drunk, and therefore more likely to speak out with no filter. Sure, I could use this to push for topics I've mentioned, one of which is uh, in the space lizard voting, but I'm not. I feel like those who are victims of suicide or future victims of suicide get lost in the discussion of suicide is bad. I said that, so I'm good, right? Your faithful sucker and peeper, uh, Travis Matrius. Your name, I don't know the last name. I, I, I think I'm nailing Travis though. Uh, Travis, I'm glad you sent this in. Uh, suicide, like most things in life, ultimately is complicated. When I said that those who commit suicide end up in Nimrod's butthole way back in Suck 49, I was doing so as a way of encouraging everyone to not give up. Right In that episode specifically, I brought it up in the context of not letting the world, not letting maybe a, a negative social circle beat you down to the point that you think suicide sounds like a good option. You know, I, I just want people to fight to stick around, bring some light to the world. That being said, I do realize that sometimes suicide is a direct result of a judgment clouded by mental illness or drug abuse. And when your mind's not working right, it can be very difficult to reach out for help. Uh, if you're capable of reaching out, then fucking reach out. I, I really hope you do. Uh, also, I don't think, yeah, the one shitty final act makes you a shitty person. Take Robin Williams. Right, the comic actor, how much joy did that one dude bring to the world? So much. So did killing himself make him an asshole in the end? No, no, of course not. I don't think it's that simple. Do I still think it's a selfish act? Yes, in all but extreme cases, I do. And again, by extreme cases, I mean, you know, uh, when somebody is, as they're, they're mentally clouded by like mental illness, uh, maybe they're terminally ill, uh, maybe they kill themselves to uh, avoid a painful death or inevitable mental and physical deterioration, you know, um, I, I get it in that sense. Travis, do I think your dad has to live in Nimrod's butthole or be punished forever? No, of course not. And, and, and I do apologize for phrasing that the way that I did. Even in a joke, it, yeah, it doesn't feel right. Maybe I need to revisit my old scrolls, make sure I'm interpreting Nimrod's will correctly. I probably messed up, you know? Some of his wisdom probably got, you know, uh, translated poorly. Just like, just like the whole smashing Cocker Spaniels to appease him and pay tribute to him is, is probably symbolic and not literal. However, I don't, also don't want to act like taking your life just because you have a, a bad day isn't a really fucked up thing to do, especially if you have a kid to take care of. And I'm sorry, you know, that your dad had that happen with him. Hey, no, not cool. I bet if he could somehow come back, he would apologize to you. So I hope you're doing well, Travis. I hope when things get dark, uh, dark thoughts surround you, you continue to fight them off. I hope the show continues to help. Hail Nimrod. Uh, next up, cool one, World War I uh, update from military history buff Meat Sack Joseph. Giacoletto, thanks for the pronunciation guide. Joseph writes, Dear Suckmaster, Reverend Dr. Cummins, Nimrod's prophet and slayer of Luciferia. I'm working my way through old episodes. I'm a recent convert. 
This is why I'm writing you this World War I update now. You talked about all the new technologies that came out with the war to end all wars, and you mentioned submarines. This was, however, not the first war in which a submarine was used. That, that distinction of the first submarine used in war, uh, used by the losers of the American Civil War, the Confederate States of America. They developed a hand crank submersible attached a torpedo to the bow called the CSA Hunley, named for the designer H.L. Hunley, and has the distinction of being the first submarine to be successfully used in combat, sinking the USS uh, Housatonic in an attempt to break the Union blockade of Charleston. Unfortunately, it was more dangerous to its crew than the enemy, killing three of its own crew members. The last sinking left it to sit on the seafloor for over 100 years until it was discovered and raised from the depths. Experts have recently finished excavating the contents furthering our understanding of the first semi-successful submarine. Love the podcast. It's a great distraction. I'm having a shitty day at work. I praise Nimrod every day that my cousin Lauren got me hooked. Keep doing what you, keep doing what you do. Your loyal spaces are Joe uh, Giacoletto. Again, thank you for the pronunciation. And uh, thanks for the correction. Yeah, World War I was when submarines were really prominently featured in battle. Your example was the first successful use of a submarine Yeah, in the Civil War. And actually, technically, the world's first uh, submarine uh, use slash attack as far as wartime, occurred in September 7th, 1776, during the Revolutionary War, when the American submersible craft called Turtle attempted to attach a time bomb to the hull of a British Admiral, uh, or to the hull of British Admiral Richard Howe's flagship Eagle in New York Harbor. First use of the submarine warfare. Designed by Saybrook native and Yale graduate David Bushnell, the Turtle was a one-man vessel submerged by admitting water into the hull and surfaced by pumping it out by hand. The oak carved egg-shaped submarine was armed with a torpedo made from a cake of powder. It would be attached to an enemy ship's hull. On the night of September 6th, 7th, the turtle operated by Army volunteer Ezra Lee made its way to the dark waters of the harbor, conducted the attack. Problems arose. However, when the boring device operated from inside, the submarine failed to penetrate the ship's hull. The torpedo was eventually abandoned. Lee emerged unhurt. The abandoned torpedo detonated about an hour after it was released, but did no harm. The turtle would attack again only to be discovered. It was sub uh, subsequently captured by the British and then sunk. Uh, pretty cool. Uh, finally, Cornelius Van Drebbel, a Dutch inventor in the service of King James I of England, he designed and built the first successful submarine way back in 1620, the year he pulled off a successful demonstration in the River Thames. So thank you, Joe, for help, uh, helping me uh, out with a little submarine history lesson. Now an important social message sent in from Spaces or Emma Sanders. Inspired by something I said way back in Suck 118, Emma writes, tie me a sucker on high. I might be a little high, but this is uh, regarding the tirade about not calling the cops when it sounds like someone is being assaulted. Uh, 118, the alphabet murders. As someone who is in a dom-sub relationship, which involves some very rough play, please call the police. Excuse me. If you think that someone is being assaulted, we have had the cops called on us once and it just made for a funny story for them and an embarrassing yet proud moment for us. Fun fact. BDSM is actually helpful for people who have suffered through sexual assault or domestic violence. It requires trust and firm boundaries. Contrary to popular belief, the submissive has total control and is able to stop the entire scene with a single word, a short phrase, or a special hand signal. Fifty Shades of Grey really fucked up the actuality of a dom-sub relationship. A true dominant will immediately stop and ask if you're okay, what's wrong, what they can do to make you comfortable. They will never do something you've explicitly told them not to do uh, for or to you. Consent, boundaries, communication, and trust, the foundations of BDSM, all things people who have been physically or sexually assaulted have problems with, often due to PTSD. There are studies which back this. My therapist actually told me about it after I mentioned being a sub. Tasty tidbit for the chompers. The word pineapple is the most often used safe word. Keep on sucking, Emma. Well, thank you, Emma, 
for that awesome message about sexual health and sexual empowerment. Uh, Hail Lucifina. I'm feeling her presence strongly right now. That was, that was some hot education. I love it. And yes, call the police if you think you're hearing a sexual assault. Always. Worst case, you embarrass someone or yourself. And at the end of the day, you know, uh, is some embarrassment really that big of a deal? I don't think so. I just recorded a stand-up special where I confessed to once fucking a banana peel and also some pillows. Don't let potential embarrassment keep you from saving somebody from being sexually assaulted. Thank you, Emma. Hail Nimrod. Uh, awesome info coming in now from Josh Branchflower. Shooting down some false flag bullshit. Uh, that stuff that can surround certain conspiracies, such as Sandy Hook, which I've referenced in a few sucks. Josh writes, well, hello, Suck Master Flex. I'm a longtime listener to Time Suck. Longer listener to your stand-up comedy and finding you had a podcast couldn't have been any better until you created the only STD that I have, I hope. Oh, thanks for listening. Scared to death. I'm writing you today with the request of a suck. I know that they get voted on and such, but just wanted to put this out there. Although I had lived in three different countries by the time I was 11, the town I resided in when I came to America was Newton, or I think it's, yeah, uh, Newtown. Maybe it's, it's either Newtown or Newton. Ah, Newton. God dang it. Now I can't remember. Now I'm having a, whatever. Uh, it's, it suddenly left me. Uh, with a part of Newton being Sandy Hook. I was in town working when the shooting happened and even uh, worse, lost friends, uh, lost family friends in the tragedy. A few years later, I even coached a few kids in hockey that had lost siblings or friends. To date, I haven't been through such a horrible event as that and I don't think I ever will be. One thing I wasn't prepared for was messages on Facebook asking me if the event was real. I know it was. I went to the funeral of our family friend where the casket was no more than four feet long. I know the cult of the curious has a lot of conspirator, uh, conspirators. And that's amazing because I love conspiracies. I enjoy diving into them. But when it comes to something like this where children's lives were lost, I discount everyone who asked me if it was real. You call them idiots of the internet. They are, but they are so, but there are so many because of the access to the internet. I feel this needs to get sucked. I don't want this to be about the gun debate or anything that could lead to controversy because personally, I do not believe that guns are the issue and who the hell wants to get political. Feel free to reach out with questions about this tragedy, even if you don't decide to do this suck, because I'm happy to talk to like-minded individuals, especially the suck master. Anyways, whether you read the ramblings or not, uh, just know that I am one of the many lives you touch with your comedy and podcasts. And if you're walking on my side of the sidewalk, I will never hesitate to put down my shoulder and tighten my core. I <laughs> uh, thank, thank you for everything, Josh. Yeah, thank you, Josh. Yeah, stay tight in the shoulder, my friend. And thanks for sharing that. Yeah, conspiracies are fun. But some people take them way too far. Start thinking that a variety of grieving parents with no history of working for the government are suddenly crisis actors. They keep thinking this because colossal dipshits like Alex Jones says that, you know, say that these things are true, despite numerous people like yourself coming forward to say, hey, fuckers, I was there, saw it, people died. It's not, it's not false. Uh, not sure how to frame a topic about the advent of the internet or how the advent of the internet has led to massive disinformation about a variety of topics, but it is a real problem. And I'm sure I can continue to touch on it in, a, in various sucks. I do want to uh, suck the Sandy Hook uh, conspiracy one of these days for sure. Hail Nimrod. Next up, great message from a meat sack, Alex Garcia. Calling me out for some judginess on the Killdozer suck. Alex writes, so I just listened to the Killdozer episode. Throughout the podcast, you kept saying that the topic was deep and complicated and not as simple as what people think. And while I agree with your position on that topic, I wanted to say that not everyone has to do research as a job for topics like you. Hell, it was so in-depth, you had to thank Zach Flannery in the middle of the episode. Uh, I noticed you do this sometimes. There's a complicated topic that requires a shit ton of research to understand, and when people don't understand it, for not researching as much as you do, you call them fucking idiots. And I say this not to complain or anything. I just say this to bring it to your attention and maybe get an answer as to why you do it. Anyway, sorry for the poorly written email. Uh, it's probably riddled with grammatical mistakes. Nah, it's, it's fine. Uh, your humble servant, Alex Garcia. P.S. Yes, I get that most people that you call fucking idiots are idiots, and I agree with that. Okay, all right, Alex. 
I want to thank you for sending this message. Uh, yes, thanks to you listeners. Uh, I, I, get, I do get to do research for a living. I do have the luxury of spending far more time on a topic than the average person. But I'm still going to keep calling these people idiots. And, and here's why. I don't think they're idiots for not understanding a complex topic. I think they're idiots for confidently leaving public comments about an issue they clearly do not understand. And in that way, they are behaving idiotically. And that's a pet peeve of mine. When I don't know a lot about a topic and it comes up in conversation, I do my best to uh, stay clear of really weighing in much. You know, I realize that I'm out of my depth. Like with current politics, a lot of my friends much more well-versed than I am. My wife, Lindsay, keeps up with politics much more than I do. So when political subjects come up, uh, when they're talking about specific political issues, uh, I talk less and listen more. Uh, I don't leave comments on the web about, you know, issues that I'm self-aware enough to realize I don't know much about. And I wish more people did the same. You know, it's okay not to know. So many people, uh, you know, um, shouldn't have left a comment of unequivocal support and encouragement for Marvin Hemeyer when all they did was just quickly listen to just his side of what was obviously a complicated issue. You know, I, I mean, does that make sense? I hope so. So it's not about people not understanding. It's about people being very opinionated about what they don't understand. Hail uh, Nimrod to you, Alex. Okay, one more killdozer message from Jason Scott. Calls me out for taking it too easy on Marvin Hemeyer's zoning dispute opponents. Jason writes, suck dozer. Hail master dozer of knowledge. Suck master muffly money, muffler money motherfucker. Hail what a doozy. Killdozer was painful to listen to because it was full of details, but that's a good thing. The more detail, the better for something like this to cut through the nonsense. Props to Zach Scriptozer Flannery for doing a good job. I'll try to be brief. Love the interview with the officer. That was a good touch. And though I don't want time suck to ever become interview suck, every once in a while will be good. Hard to be sympathetic at all for Killdozer because at the end of the day, he destroyed tons of private property, put everyone's life in danger, no sympathy. However, to paint him as just a kook or a woe is me type, not entirely accurate. He was a victim of small town horseshit and it drove him over the edge. He could have sold out several times and left well enough alone, but he didn't. His pride drove him to this terrible act. And even though local assholes made his life painful, he wasn't without options for leaving multiple times. Nepotism and favoritism are sad traits of human nature. And he's far from the only person who's ever been a victim of it. I really wanted to write it and tell you that I felt like you gushed over the small townness of it all. And I think that sounded a little out of character for you. Generally, you seem to always champion the rule of law. But in this story, you got annoyingly rah-rah about him uh, being a townie versus an outsider. I get it. I grew up in a small town, now live in a smaller city that is slowly being bought up by people from northern states, goddamn Yankees, who take advantage of the disparity in income to buy up the affordable property here and price people out. Trust me, I've been in the same goddamn tiny apartment for five years because it's impossible to buy a house, so I understand. But the rule of law is what defines us as a nation and as a civilized species. We should never turn a blind eye to corruption. That shit happens mentality has poisoned government on every level, and the tribalism that continues to support it makes even the discussion of it impossible. For the record, I don't condone Killdozer, man, at all, nor do I believe he has any justification whatsoever for his actions. If I was him, I would have sold out many years earlier and left well enough alone, but pride is a motherfucker for some people. Dan, you probably saved my life more than once because you uh, of a soundbite on a previous episode about the dangers of pride. You talked about how you were exiting a plane once and some dude cut in front of you, and the guy next to you was like, it's not worth it. This past year, I've been traveling a lot for my second job. You know, two jobs, still can't afford a fucking house. And when I'm on the road, I always have your voice in my head. No matter how fucked up, corrupt, or unfair something is, life is more important. Walk away from any shit situation. Live another day. Your pal, loyal apartment dwelling spaces are Jay. Well, thank you, Jay. Yes, sir. I have to remind myself, not worth all the damn time. Still have temper flare-ups where in a moment I debate risking my family's financial future just to teach someone uh, who I think is an asshole what I think is a lesson. Dumb. I have to fight those urges often. Uh, yes, law is important. 
And while some minor laws may have actually been broken by the Granby Council, here's my thing with Killdozer. I'm not sure any major law really was broken because he did file a lawsuit against the town. It, it didn't even make it to trial. It was dismissed. So were a bunch of laws actually broken to fuck him over? I'm just not sure they were. Sounds like they weren't. As far as glossing over nepotism and conflicts of interest, I, I just think it's inevitable in some small situation. Like in higher branches of government, I get it. Very important to avoid. Uh, you know, in the Oval Office, Capitol Hill, and state government. But in volunteer, teeny town, less than 2,000 people, volunteer government. Uh, do I think it's messed up uh, for people who grew up together to try to stick together and help each other out on an issue to be loyal to one another? No, I just think it's kind of a normal community thing to do. But again, I do see what you're saying. Coming from a small town where my grandpa was once not only the city inspector, but also the mayor. Yeah, I'm probably biased. For sure I am. Uh, I'm sorry my bias came out more than normal and that suck. Best of luck with the change in economy in your town. Uh, I feel for you. Uh, hail Nimrod, Jay. And last message. We'll leave on some comedy. Meet sack Chris Schwartz. Schwartzis. Schwartzis. There we go. Yeah, thank you for the pronunciation of Kate. Or guide. Chris Schwartzis. Uh, shared a rough part of the suck with the wrong audience. And I laughed my ass off when I first read this. Chris wrote, Subject of God fucking damn it, Master Sucker. Sorry for the strong subject line. Just wanted to get your attention. Hey, Master Sucker, Reverend Cummins, Esquire, the third leader of Suckdom. You got me, damn it. So things have been tough lately, so I decided to get a second job to help support my wife and three kids. For the last four weeks, I've been interviewing and trading phone calls with a local company that helps those with mental disabilities with their daily lives and lead them to have a more productive individual life in the community. I tell you this because today I received a final call from the company that I've been waiting on for a week. Don't worry, get into the good part. At that moment, I had been sitting at my desk at my main job, working at a quality control associate in an office space that I share with two other gentlemen. So to listen to the suck, I used wireless Bluetooth earbuds. I was listening to the ninth circle cult suck when it suddenly cut out and my phone began to ring. I answered and went to say hello, but by some wackadoodle tomfoolery, when I slide to answer the phone, the suck comes back to life. And for some reason, my Bluetooth headphone disconnects and what blares out of my phone was, I think we all can agree that uh, every 40-something-year-old dude wants to motorboat some fresh-out-of-the-box junior high titties. If there's grass on the field, am I right, fellas? I, st <laughs> I struggled to stop the suck, but Nimrod's will was too strong. To my biggest embarrassment, my boss, one of the guys I share my office space with, by the way, hears all of that. Yes, the woman from the, comp uh, the, woman from the company I was applying to on the phone also heard it. I finally wrestled the suck to submission, tried to answer the phone as if nothing happened. She asked me what that was. <laughs> I explained I explained it was a podcast called Time Suck, and I tried my best to explain what you just heard. Did I mention this is a Christian-based organization? A few harrowing moments pass uh, when she says to me, oh yeah, my husband listens to that. I felt a little relieved, and you would be happy to hear that I got the job. So it's <laughs> good. I'm glad it worked out. So after the call, I put my earbuds back in, backed up a bit, and lost my shit when you said that line about this getting taken out of context. Anyway, I've been listening to Time Suck for a while now. I've noticed that on the Time Sucker updates, this has been happening to others as well. So if someone else hasn't coined this term yet, I call it Cummins Law, kind of like Murphy's Law. And it states, if any situation has the potential to be embarrassing, an ill-timed Master Sucker rant will make it even more embarrassing. Well, that's all I got, Master Sucker. Sorry about the long email, but I had to share. Hail Nimrod. Hail to Master Sucker. Hail the Queen of the Suck. Praise Bojangles. All glory be to Triple M and Lucifina. Call me. Here come the spoons, motherfucker, and keep on. Sucking your faithful space lizard, Chris Schwart, uh, Schwartis. The E is silent, Mushmouth. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that tip. Uh, P.S. If you happen to read this on the suck, can you shout out a fellow space lizard and one of my best friends, Lawrence Brewster? For the love of Nimrod, where the hell can I buy a laser rocket? 
Uh, well, thank you, Chris. And hello to uh, you, Lawrence Brewster. Hail Nimrod to you both. Uh, Cummins Law, I love it, man. If a situation provides the potential for me to really embarrass you by hearing others, uh, you know, uh, or having others hear me say some super fucked up shit out of context, it's probably gonna happen. So, so be careful out there, Meat Sacks. Don't let me uh, get you fired. If you lose that paycheck, you might not be able to pay the, the phone or the Wi-Fi bill and you might not be able to keep on sucking. Thank you for the messages, everybody. Thanks for listening every week and letting us do what we do. And uh, I'll, I'll talk to you very soon. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. Have a great week, everybody. If you make a ton of money and live into your 90s, careful who you trust with your money. Also, if you're lucky to live that long, dentures or not, keep on sucking. Couple dirty trouser hobos hitching a ride.